Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about redemption arcs. I think, first off, we probably need to define a redemption arc versus, like, um, a character rebuilding. Because um, earlier in the week, we talked about making Hannibal a sentinel, um, Hannibal Lecter. Um, and the only way that we could do that is to take him all the way back to the event that turned him into a cannibal and make him a sentinel instead. Because I don't see a circumstance where a cannibal and a serial killer could come online in my headcanon as a sentinel. And so, and there is a difference between writing them with a different origin so they never turn out to be an asshole. And taking a character who is an asshole in canon and redeeming them from their canon circumstances. At least in my mind. Thoughts, no, I agree. Um, although sometimes you take them in their canon circumstances, like pre-canon, but like, like the the plot drift we did, Victoria Argent is to me it's a redemption arc because she was already on that path to becoming mm -hmm. what she was in canon, but you're throwing a a catalyst in her way that puts her on a different path um, or alters her trajectory so that she has a chance to redeem herself. But she's not you're not going all the way back to childhood. But yeah, so. if she had been raised in a non-hunter family, had never hunted werewolves, um, that's not a redemption arc. That, that, that's a different origin story. So, I mean, when you... Do, it, some characters, it's really hard to redeem, and you really... You have to go back... Like, Victoria Argent's very hard to redeem. That's why it hasn't been done much. Um, there are a few. Um, but... It hasn't been done much because she's very hard to redeem. Not as hard as Gerard Argent or Kate Argent, but she is very hard to redeem. So you have to go back enough that you can put a real, you know, ch change her before her events are unforgivable. Because I think once you have a character do something that's unforgivable, it's hard to write a redemption arc. One of the things um, I really liked about Aliyah Moto, um, which is Jilly's. Um, story about Severus Snape is that it's um, you've created an alternate set of circumstances for him where he's repeatedly lived his own life over and over again and he's been tortured to the point of um, I mean in, in several instances probably you know insanity uh, which you know isn't a traditional redemption art because he has a different set of canon circumstances um, you see the last life we see him live is the canon event, but it's not the last one he had. So his soul has gone through a whole hell of a lot. So you take him back in time and you put him in a position that he would never have been in in canon um, and give him goals that he has to, to, to work his way through. Um, so it's a mixture of alternate universe origin and redemption for the Snape that we knew in canon. It's a very interesting um, take on the whole premise. But I did see a redemption art for Snape once where after he died, um, he was given an opportunity to go back in time. Um, and uh, someone will be able to find this fic for me, I'm I'm 100% certain. Um, and he goes back in time and he gets his mother out of her relationship with his father who's abusive. And he makes... Um, Basically, he gets his mom to to seek out the Evans family for help, and Lily and Petunia's parents help her. 
And he becomes basically a surrogate brother to Petunia and Lily. Um, and Petunia turns out to not be, um, she's not traditionally magical, but she has green magic. And so they figure out a way for her to learn magic that way with, with um, plants and herbology and stuff like that. So she is not a traditional witch, but she's not necessarily an entirely a muggle either. It's a really interesting thing. And the whole point is, is that he has to protect Harry and Hermione. So he eventually, um, because he grows up with uh, Lily and Petunia and Lily um, marries James, he gets to be um, Uncle Severus. Um, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Harry and Hermione to get their memories back. Because they're going to remember too. But meanwhile, both Harry and Hermione both have this really good relationship with this version of Severus Snape. And then they get their memories back. And they have all these memories of this awful relationship they had with Snape. And it's difficult for them to, to reconcile their new circumstances with their old circumstances. And what's really interesting is that um, it's, there's a fixed point. No matter what he does, no matter how much he tries, he cannot prevent the death of Lily Potter. Um, um, Lily and James both die defending Harry. Um, but this time, you know, Petunia is a, a good person. And it's, uh, so there's no, you know, and Sirius is never blamed, or Dumbledore isn't successful in blaming him for being the secret keeper. Uh, and it's just, it's it's really interesting to see because the, the writer never shies away from the fact that Severus was a complete asshole <laughs> in canon. But that he is given a second chance to be a better man. Not a better wizard, but a better man. And that is, you know, the heart of the redemption arc. And I wish I remembered the title of it because it's actually really good. But I don't. Willow? <laughs> As? <laughs> I've never read this one. Um, sorry, I may be a little sniffly. My sister brought me some orange chicken and it was a little spicier than usual. So now my nose is running. <laughs> <laughs> Catch you off guard. Um, when it comes, I think, when it, when it comes to redemption arcs, sometimes uh, unobvious characters can need redemption. And the questions that led to this were not just about redemption arcs, but also about... Um, well, we can read that question later because there really is like two different tracks here. It's because like, are you trying to write, there's a difference between writing a redemption arc and writing your kind of like anti-villain as the here, as the protagonist of the story. And that it really isn't the same thing. And the reason why I said anti-villain and not villain is because a true villain, nobody wants to read the true villain as the protagonist of a story. They just don't. Uh, we don't identify with the villain. And the difference between an anti-villain um, and a villain is that the anti-villain is doing shitty things for a reason you can relate to. But you still want them defeated, usually. Okay? So, that usually, uh, the anti-villain is the character that you relate to, um, that you understand why they act the way they act, to some degree. And but you still ultimately don't want them to win because they're usually pitted as the antagonist. So anti-villain is are often pitted as the antagonist in a story. Um, not, not always. I mean, not all antagonists are, are villains or anti-villains. Sometimes antagonists are a good guy, right? They're, they're the cop that's in the way of the, your character. Um, 
the Punisher would be an anti-hero. And often um, the antagonist, uh, many times the antagonist like the Punisher could be law enforcement. Um, the Winchesters could be perceived as anti-heroes. Antagonists in many of their storylines are law enforcement. So antagonist does not necessarily mean villain. But like, does anybody want to read a Sauron POV story where we're trying to relate to Sauron? No, no. No, but I wouldn't mind reading a POV story for Sauron. Okay. Yeah. See, it all depends upon some characters are just perceived as being so inherently bad that we don't want to know more about them. And some people might, now I tend to, some people might perceive Hannibal as an anti-villain because the whole eat the rude thing is something, whether we want to admit it or not, that we find kind of endearing. Um. <laughs> So when it comes to anti-villains, if you think about anti-villains, um, uh, Eric Killmonger was an anti-villain. Um, a very good knew, one. Very good one. We knew he had to go down. Um, we knew he had to be defeated, but we related to him. We related to how abandoned he felt. We related to, and those, I think anti-villains actually are very effective, more effective than just pure evil because because an anti-villain is sort of what real life is about, right? So a lot of times people do shitty things for good reasons. We understand their reasons and we relate to their reasons. The For those of you who saw the Jack Ryan arc, the, the terrorist that he's chasing the whole time, I can't remember his name, um, I would call him an anti-villain. Um, because we relate to what he went through and the trauma he went through as a child and the way he lost his family, but what he was doing out of that pain was unacceptable. So I think it's easier to write a redemption arc or write from the point of view of an anti-villain. And when it comes to Hannibal, POV is something that authors play with a ton, right? Because they don't even try to redeem Hannibal. It's not a redemption arc when you read a Hannibal story. He just becomes the protagonist where he gets away with it, which is different than a redemption arc. So in that case, to one of the questions that was asked, which was about POV being everything, POV is everything. Because are you writing a story where Hannibal and Will ride off into the sunset together and Hannibal keeps eating people? That is not a redemption arc. That is a murder husband's and you're leaning into it. And that's where POV, we talk about POV is everything. Redemption arc would be that like Hannibal stops eating people and he protects Will and he does all of that would be, that would be a, and nobody really wants to read that in that particular fandom. There are some stories out there. I think where Hannibal does stop eating people because Will asks him to, um, um, there's, I read an interesting story the other night in the Hannibal fandom, and I wish that I had saved it. It's probably in my history. Um, he, Hannibal's in a car accident, and he wakes up, and he has no idea who he is. Pretty much the only thing he remembers is Will Graham. The first person he recognizes, Will Graham. He's, he falls in love with Will while he's trying to recover his memories. Um, and when he figures out what he is. He is so furious. When he figures out that he's a serial killer and a cannibal, he is so angry because what he used to be is preventing him from having what he wants. And he wants Will Graham. 
And it is, it was stunning. It was stunning. Very short, though. Not very long at all. Um, and But he eventually reconciles with himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because sure at the heart of it, he's a cannibal. Right. <laughs> um, but the redemption arc for Snape that I was talking about is called um, uh, Reboot by Kalanit. And I'm going to put it in the arc, um, in the um, link library. It's on fanfiction.net, as most Harry Potter stories are. <laughs> Um, so when you're looking at doing a redemption arc for a anti-villain or even if you want to go full on villain there, um, but I'm going to mostly talk about anti-villains because I think most villains people aren't going to try to, well, you actually can write redemption, you can write redemption arcs for full on villains. Um, but that's like a redoing kind of thing, like that they get to the other end. That, I think that might involve time travel usually. But when it comes to does POV make a difference? POV makes a difference if you're not doing a redemption arc. And the Hannibal fandom is the classic example of that. Is if you're not trying to write redemption and you're, you've got an anti-villain and you just the audience loves them for their awfulness, then you're just leaning into it. And then the POV does matter because Jack Crawford's POV would suck, right? You don't want to write a story where Hannibal is the protagonist if you write it from Jack Crawford's POV. So, so when we talk about, so just changing the POV does not necessarily change the protagonist. Um, so if you're trying to write a, a redemption arc or you're trying to humanize a bad guy or something, POV does POV is also very important there. Um, but you just have to be really clear about what you're trying to do. Are you trying to, you know, write like a time travel story where the bad guy gets to the other side, sees they've done something shitty, and they go back in time? And what is it you want to do? Do you want to write a story where Voldemort gets to the gets to King's Cross Station after he dies and he goes, Oh, hmm, maybe now that I've got all my soul together, I can see that that was a really bad idea. And he's given the opportunity to go back and do it again. I mean. What, what is it that you want to accomplish? So I think with real villains, for most of the part, I think the only way that I, easy way I could think of to do a redemption arc with a real, with a true villain is to do time travel. Where it's like they died and they went, yeah, I should have done differently. <laughs> nah, I'm kind of an asshole. My bad. The one where Hannibal forgets who he, who and what he is, is called Empty Slot. And it's by Dancy94. And it's on Archive of Our Own. Um, it's about it's about thirty three k. Very good. Um, very interesting. Um, but I remember, but the, but the moment that sticks out for me most it is that when he realizes who and what he is, he's so angry, he's so mad because it's going to ruin. Um, it's going to ruin everything. Yeah, and and realistically, it should. But yeah, <laughs> yeah realistically, it, it should. It just many times in this fandom, it doesn't. Um, See, this, remember we talked about, just as a cautionary tale, folks, remember we talked about in the past where you read stuff and you become inured to it? I'm becoming inured to the cannibalism jokes. Yeah, I mean, it, there are just so many times that you can see a joke about what the Hannibal is going to be eating the next day before it just doesn't even cross your mind to be appalled that he's talking about a person. I mean, I read, and I don't, this is, this is how far gone I am into the Hannibal fandom. I read an ABO fic, um, no mindless heat. So that, so that wasn't a problem. Um, 
I really didn't encounter any consent issues unless you count the fact that Hannibal banged him without telling him he was a cannibal. I mean, that could be considered fraud, I guess. We all have secrets. <laughs> Anyways, so Will's sitting there and he's found out he's pregnant because ABO. And um, he, uh, he's, he, he, Hannibal sets the table and Will's looking at his plate and he said, and he looks up and, and at this point, Hannibal does not know that Will knows that he's a cannibal um, and that he's been feeding cannibal. I mean, he, he's been feeding people to Will. Um, and Will's like, is, is this, um, who's for dinner? Because I don't think I should be eating people while I'm pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, and Hannibal's just staring at him. Is like, and honestly, this story, we both, I, I was, it was late. And I I pinged Kira and I said, why am I pondering clicking on this Hannibal ABO fic? I don't read ABO fic. And Kira says, I know exactly which one you're talking about. I've been thinking about it too. And almost <laughs> simultaneously we clicked. And we started reading. And the thing is, I have to be honest with you guys, it there was so much that for me was wrong with it. So much. So so much. But the author so leaned into the into it. They were she was so and it was so funny that I mean, there was this line about playing sex chicken with a cannibal that I just, I almost fell out of bed. I was laughing so hard. My um, favorite one is where she breaks the fourth wall with her fist because she says, but Will digresses. But Will, I know, but Will digresses. That was in the first, that was in the first chapter. And I, I screenshot that. Like, I was like, she has got solid but, brass balls and we both tripped on that at the exact same time but will I mean, digresses and we we're t we texted each other and i was like one of us sent a screenshot and the other one typed it but will digresses. <laughs> <laughs> like, i mean she breaks the fourth wall she has character speaking dialogue in the same paragraph she has things in it that i'll be like girl no stop and i kept reading i read the whole thing actually, i was very entertained I, there were times I'm like, I'm getting uncomfortable with some of the stuff going on here. But then I was like, oh, yeah, that's funny as fuck. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going because I can't help. I cannot help myself. And so and I had it's become called Wager War by Della19. Yeah. Is, that, is, is, that, is that the right link, Margaret? That is the right link. But Will digresses. That's, but that's we'll, actually what she should have called the fic. But Will but digresses. We'll, we'll digress um, a lot. <laughs> That's also the one where Will is taking suppressants and he pretends to be a beta, right? And yes. he meets um Hannibal who's an alpha and he will decides, "Well, I want that." So he go so he goes off his suppressants, has a masturbation festival at his home before his appointment with Hannibal, uh, Hannibal. <laughs> then goes in Oh my god. Oh my god. I just He basically rubs his vaginal secretions, okay? Let's just vaginal secretions all over his hands, puts on gloves, goes to Hannibal's office, takes those gloves off and rubs it all over his throw pillow. <laughs> it's just it's so it is so over the top. I mean the author just went full on with the over the top to the walls you know at, at, at certain points in this pic I actually felt bad for Hannibal I doubt he ever really had realized there could come a point when, when he would be prey 
Will was definitely, definitely hunting. Um, <laughs> but I just, but I she, got to the point. She could have called that fit Goodwill hunting. It would have been great. She could have. She could have. I, and, it, and she didn't hesitate for me for, for going after the real, sometimes the obvious puns. And they were funny as hell for it. I just, I was just, I don't know. It was. I mean, I even texted her at one point. And said, Why am I reading this? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Will Will's playing sex chicken with a Chesapeake Ripper, and he's playing for keeps. That was the line that just <laughs> I I just died. I just died. It's, oh, here's um, my linked up here at the top. Uh, uh, Margaret linked it. So here's what I said to Kira at two thirty four in the morning. I said a couple lines so far that hinted a possible note to piss. I'm reserving my judgment for now. And then I said, Oh my god, I can't even with this pillow thing. <laughs> Okay, so apparently there's this thing in the ABO um, thing that I, so I don't read ABO, so I had no idea that this whole thoroughbred alpha thing was was a thing. Uh, I'd never heard of it. Apparently it's, I did, I thought maybe she'd done it, it was just one story, but Kira told me later. I found it in more than one, and I was like, they're like, apparently like special alphas. No, it's not just her. Well, she, she explains the science of it, though. Yeah, that they have a, they have a, that they're just genetically superior. They're, um, they're stronger, they're faster. Maybe better they're all serial killers. Se- I don't know. Better sense of smell. <laughs> which is the why, science. Which is why Will was doing it. I was like, oh my God. And then, it, again, middle of the night, because my prime reading time is the middle of the night, but <laughs> I'm texting Karen. I'm going, why am I reading a cannibal coffee shop at you? <laughs> To which I responded, Link. Yeah, she did. And the thing is, I don't, you guys know, I've talked about, I don't like coffee shop at you. I think coffee shop at you is probably more offensive to Jilly sometimes than than, than, than an ABO. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I reading this? She's like, I don't know. The problem is, here's the problem, is that this this is this is the big issue, is that it's beautifully written. And I I think I've just been like not getting enough that's beautifully written. I don't remember what, honestly, I couldn't tell you what story this is from, which is tragic. So I'm just going to put it in the chat and people in the, listen to this later are going to be like super angry at me for not knowing what story this is from. I don't even, I honestly, I don't even know if I finished it, but um, this was so beautifully written that I just, I had to keep it. <laughs> Does anything shock you? Nothing about you. Do we have a compromise? I always misspell. I always say that run it wrong, and I have to pause and go over it. Um, what do you want? Stop doing things that would scare her. They scare me too. I don't want to be scared of you. Hannibal was silent for a long moment. But what is your concession? What do you want? Stay with me always. Will smiled a little. That that's not a concession, Hannibal. I'll stay no matter what. I've read that too. I can't even tell you what it was from, but just that that segment, I was like, I hate this fandom. I sat there thinking that's beautifully written. I hate this fandom. <laughs> this is me becoming a nerd to the cannibal. Jokes. And what and, and what Hannibal is saying and, and what Will is saying is that um, he asked Hannibal how Hannibal's sister would feel if he if she knew what he was doing, um, and Hannibal admits that it would probably scare her and hurt her. Um, and so Will 
ask him not to do anything that would scare or hurt his sister because it scares and hurts him too. But then even after that, he says that it, it, I'll stay with you regardless. Go back to that podcast we did about happily ever after and unconditional love, um, which is not reality. Right. But it's often explored in um, Hannibal, both, I think, actually in Fanon and in canon. Um, that even after Hannibal guts Will, Will is still deeply, intimately connected to Hannibal. Well, their relation, I mean, that's canon that they were, I mean, Will broke him out of prison and they went on a, they went hunting a dragon together. So, no, 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 no. I would not I, read one where I Will would, was reincarnated as um, me, um I, I, that, I, that Misha thought, had been reincarnated as Will. That's gross. I have, <laughs> I have, some, hard, I have some hard limits. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think you know, and they did say if there had been a fourth season that you would see Will and Hannibal together. Um, the fact of the matter is, I do think that they were in love with each other, um, as much as two fucked up people can be. And nobody's definition of of love is, you know, there isn't one singular definition of love. Um, We all have our issues, Shadow. There isn't a whole lot of fanfic in Hannibal. We had to make, you know, exceptions. (laughs) I, the thing is, and the thing is, I've actually, no, I've read, I've read other ABO fics. I've, talked about there that's why i know that it's a problem for me is where it goes and i was prepared all along to nope out of that story if it crossed the line and i was just laughing so the one time it to me it kind of crossed the line i was laughing so hard i didn't even care and that's the thing right is that somebody who handles the subject really well in some fashion whether they're making you laugh your ass off or just appreciate their sheer audacity can get you over some hurdles but there are some things i wouldn't even pick up i would not pick up incest fic, even pseudo-incest. Um, I wouldn't read Hannibal with an underage will. I've scrolled past several of those. So yeah, far. me too. Um, uh, I can't do it. I've not read the Wendigo AUs, and I have not read the Banshee Will series, but the Banshee Will series is on my list. Um, I didn't even know. But I, I skipped over the Wendigo stuff. So. Wendigos kind of freak me out, so I can't imagine I would I mean, on that, but... It's not honestly much different than Hannibal. You know, Wendigos eat people. Hannibal eats people. I know. I don't. I can't. Whatever. It, it's a thing. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna confess something. When I watched the first season of Hannibal, which is all I allowed myself to watch, because you know, like Joe said earlier, you you can get used to it to the point where nothing shocks you. And um, the creepiest part of season one was the stag. I liked the stag. I liked it, but it was the creepiest part for me. It was the most psychologically lingering. I barely remember the bodies except for the mushroom farm. Um, but the stag stands out to me. It, you know, visually, because the, yeah. the cinematography is gorgeous. And so that's the part that stands out to me most. Not the human totem pole, not really the mushroom people. I mean, you know, the, the angel people. I mean, it was terrible, right? But those visual Im- the, that visual imagery is completely gone from my head unless I see a picture of it. 
or I watched something on YouTube. But that stag is like a permanent fixture in my brain. Yeah. Um, well, that, yeah, what they, you, you, Margaret, do you mean when you say the stag is your Wendigo head, Ken? You mean what they turned Hannibal into in Will's mind in later seasons where he was all black with the antlers? Like that inky black. I don't think we saw that in season one. I think that was season three that we started seeing that. But anyway, um, you can really become inured. Now, I haven't had much time as much. I haven't had as much time to read as Kira, so she's probably way ahead of me on the reading stuff. But I have only picked up the one ABO thing, and it was just because she leaned into the awfulness so hard that it was the it was the Omega going hunting thing. Um, but I scrolled right past. I mean, right the fuck past several stories where Hannibal buys Will. You know. Yeah, I'm not, not, I'm not, uh, not because I, not in it. I have, I have my hard limits, and I'm exploring this whole pairing and getting and trying to just deal with my aversion to cannibalism, right? That it really squicks me because, and because I've been totally upfront about that in the past. That the only reason, the only reason why I'm not hardcore into that fandom is because of the cannibalism. I, I admitted last week, week before last, that the the real problem I had, um, I've read Taken for Rubies. Uh, I preferred the other one. That's where that um, I think that's I think that's where that line came from. What what you read earlier, I think that's what they're saying. That's what it came oh. from. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Taken for Rubies by Imogere is the uh, story with the thing Kira read earlier. Um, Imogere, I'm a fan. Yeah, I am. She's got it. She's got it going on. She is. Um, she is super talented. Um, her craft is is on point. Um, I am such a big fan. Um. But what was I saying? Cannibalism? I don't know. You said something. Oh, but my major problem with cannibalism isn't the cannibalism. It's the cooking. That's your problem with writing in the fandom is the cooking. Yeah. But for me, it's just about. I mean, I wouldn't eat people. I'm just saying I wouldn't know how to cook people properly either. (laughs) Well, that would be rude and Hannibal might come for me. First time I read Blackbird, which was a while ago, um, I thought I need to not read anymore in this fandom because it was the last thing of the group of stuff that this friend of mine recommended um, that I read. And I, after I read it, I said, I can't read anymore in this fandom or I will just keep going and I'll just glut myself on it. Because it's so well written. Um, like, then I'm going to want to start writing it. And then I was just like, oh, cannibalism now. Um, but oh man, the food jokes, the food puns, it never ends. The food jokes, the food jokes, the food jokes. But really, I mean, whose fault is it? Because the most imminent food joke in Hannibal came from Hannibal's mouth in the movie when he told Clary Starling that he was going to have an old friend for dinner while yeah. he was staring at Chilton. Yeah, at the end of the movie. <laughs> But anyway, when it comes to like when it comes to when we talk about POV as everything, Hannibal's a great example of where POV is really important. And it's not like you're turning Hannibal into a hero by putting it in his point of view point of view, but you might be putting him making him the the protagonist. And there's a difference between protagonist, antagonist, hero, anti-hero, anti-villain, villain. These are all very different roles in a story. And an anti-villain, any of those people could be the protagonist and a lot of that does have to do with point of view that said a redemption arc is a completely different thing that has absolutely nothing to do with point of view 
in this regard. You can't just put it in Hannibal's point of view and have it be a redemption arc. That's a function of the plot, the story you're telling. And the the closest I've read to an an outright redemption arc, um, I think probably was the Cafe AU, because he wasn't like um, he wasn't necessarily the Ripper. He was, uh, and what was really interesting is that when Will realizes that, that Hannibal has a secret from him, he's upset, he's furious, he thinks that Hannibal is cheating on him, and Hannibal's like, "I'm not cheating, I'm not cheating, I killed somebody," because <laughs> apparently confessing murder. <laughs> and casual cannibalism is um better than cheating. Uh so uh and he tell and what's really interesting is in the fic that you learn is that Hannibal doesn't eat a lot of beef, he eats a lot of fish and stuff. So the only meat he eats is people. Mm-hmm. Um and he's only killed two or three people, like the people who killed his his family, four people, and then like two different people. Because they were rude. And that's it. It's, it isn't like he's the Chesapeake Ripper. And that's about as close as I've seen in the Hannibal fandom to anything approaching a redemption arc. Um, where he's not just, you know. And he never fed Will people either. That I, I don't think. Yeah, so that can, I mean, it's kind of a redemption arc. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of making a softer, gentler. Uh... I mean, you know. As my grandma yeah. was fond of saying, as some people need it. The the cafe is called Providence. It's by Drink Blood Like Wine and by Whiskey and Spite. I like those names. Um, it's going to go in the link library. Um, but anyway, Hannibal's a good example of where it's not so much about writing a redemption arc, but the POV does matter because you can easily write Hannibal and or Will and Hannibal as the protagonist of your story. And that is most of the fandom for, for to, be, to be honest. And most often, um, Jack Crawford, really the only good character in Hannibal, I mean, who, 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 who hasn't been corrupted in some way, a major character who hasn't been deeply corrupted by Hannibal is often the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Because he's in their way. He's the person throwing up obstacles. He's the person throwing up. Um, you know. Yeah, you have major problems with Jack because he gets in Hannibal's way, and he uses Will to his own benefit. But Jack's purpose is justice, mm-hmm. which makes him fundamentally, based upon the definition, he's a hero. But he's but he's the antagonist in Hannibal. In most of the and most of the fanfics, he's the antagonist. So now in the show. That's no. true. His, his his actions toward Will in the show are are ugly. Will's just a tool to him. But that doesn't mean his, his motivations are anything less than what they are. He seeks justice. He wants to put the Chesapeake Ripper in jail. He wants people who kill people to go to jail. That makes him the good guy. Jack actually fits the model of hero better than Will does. And you may have problems with Jack, but it doesn't change where he fits in the kind of character archetypes. He's manipulative. He might be... He's an asshole. But... He might be manipulative and an asshole, but doesn't change the fact. And he'll do use every tool at his disposal. But he's not fundamentally a lot different than a lot of other characters, hero-type characters in law enforcement shows, where they use they cross the line trying to get justice. Um, I can't even, he might, you might be able to argue he's a little bit of the anti-hero type thing, but um, since he's a side character, that distinction actually isn't all that important because in most Hannibal fan fiction, he functions t- 
typically as an antagonist. And also it needs to be said that, well, no, he did not send her to her death. She figured out who Hannibal was and Hannibal um, captured her, kept her uh, captive and eventually cut off her own. So, no, that's not Jack's fault. Maybe he should have kept a better eye on her because she was a trainee, but she, yeah, and she was a student, but she did that to herself. She's the one that went off by herself without telling anybody where she was going, without telling anybody what she'd found to prove herself, to show that she was just as good or she was worthy of his attention. So her arrogance and her ego got her captured by serial killer. I'm not victim blaming. What happened to her was fucked up. And Hannibal is to blame she, for it, but, but she, she still broke, broke protocol in those circumstances. She broke, and her her breaking protocol and putting herself in those circumstances is why Jack became so obsessed. So, in a lot of ways, Miriam's actions directly led to the ripple of what Miriam did, led to the way Jack treated Will because he stopped seeing people as people. He started seeing them as tools to avenge in the, what he perceived as his own failing. But none of that makes him evil. It honestly doesn't even make him like Dumbledore. One of the most interesting moments in Silence of the Lambs is when Jack Crawford is with the rest of the FBI and he has um, asked Clarice. Clarice has found a lead that she thinks is really important and she wants to go interview this guy. And he says, okay, we're about to break on on Buffalo Bill. You go get that background information because we're going to need it for the case. He breaks into that house with his SWAT team or whatever the FBI is called. Um, only to realize they're in the wrong place. And the first thing he thinks, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is one word, Clarice, because he's realized that she found Buffalo Bill. Mm. And every moment after that, in Jack Crawford's mind, it's a moment that Buffalo Bill could be killing Clarice Starling. So he is moving, moving, moving right towards her, right where she is. And the difference between Clarice and Miriam is Clarice told Jack Crawford exactly where she was. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, I agree in the Hannibal TV show that Jack was not a great leader a lot of the time. I don't think he managed his resources very well. And honestly, he shouldn't have been continued to stay in charge of that case when his attention and his emotions were so divided with his wife dying of cancer. Um, but he wasn't a villain. He wasn't an anti-villain. And, and like I said, in terms of character archetypes, he fits more in the role of, um, you know, the justice obsessed cop, which is closer to hero than it is even to anti-hero. Um, sorry, I just slapped my mic. Um, but I'm just actually, I'm just talking about the TV show. I mean, I agree with, with the analysis, Kira's analysis completely between the difference between what happened in silence of the lambs, because the TV show is a parallel for the books and the movies. It is not an, add on to them because right everything is different so there Very is differences and, and one of I, the biggest differences is that will graham did not have a significant relationship with hannibal lecter upon their second meeting hannibal gutted him because he figured out he was the chesapeake ripper so they spun the TV show very differently, but you can look at how things went in the book and go, okay, well, there are some things we can infer and conclusions we can draw about what because they're mirroring here. the they dragon, are mirroring. Um, they're mirroring a lot of the events, and so the the Minnesota strike, it's all there. It's it's just it's a mirroring of what happened in the books. Um, but my characterization of Hannibal is actually mostly influenced by the movie Hannibal Rising. And in that, I would definitely call him Hannibal Rising. I would definitely call him an anti-villain. 
Yeah, absolutely. You really, you really understand. You're rooting um, for him. You're, you're taking them off. Gotcha. 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 You, you fucking Nazi. Gotcha. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put him in there. Put him in the incinerator. <laughs> and borderline actually in Hannibal Rising, maybe even borderline, he's anti-hero because anti-heroes do the wrong thing for the right reasons, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to the reverse, the anti-villain. They do the wrong things for the right reasons. That's very oversimplified, so please don't email me. I actually know the nuance, but... But Hannibal um, Rising is a revenge arc. Yeah. But anti-heroes, like the Punisher, that's what they do, Right. They're punishing the bad guys. You know, they're doing the abs but they're doing it the absolutely wrong way. Do the Nazis deserve to die? Do these assholes deserve to do they deserve justice? Yeah. Is he doing it for revenge? Is that the right reason? No. That's more of an anti-hero arc. And then when you move into the later stuff, he's more anti-villain. But it all just I would say in the TV show he kind of functions somewhere between villain and anti-villain, depending upon what's going on. The whole thing with the encephalitis was full on villain behavior to me. Yeah, it and honestly. When I look at the events, and this is terrible, I'm going to, this out front, I'm saying this is terrible. Don't send me emails. Um, but for me, that is the one act in the show that I find the most unforgivable. Yeah, the encephalitis, yeah. I mean, even though he killed people and ate them. But when we get later in the series and we learn more about him and you started relating to him more and why he became the way he did, they did the same thing in Hannibal Rising, mm -hmm. is they kind of like morph him more into the anti-villain role where you know he still needs to go down. You know he's probably still going to die by the end, but you understand him. And that's that's the function of an anti-villain. So, um, and yes, I agree. Mason Verger was villain in every instance, in every art, you know, in every um iteration we have of mason whether it's the books the movies um the tv show mason was atrocious no mm -hmm. one was remotely interested in it you, you can't put it you can't just make writing mason as for instance as the um protagonist would just be something i think what people would find off-putting so we'll, let's try a different example because um like i said just changing the point of view in some cases, if your character is really, really relatable, if their goals and motives are really relatable, and the way to do that is, when you, is if you've got an anti-villain as opposed to um, a full-on villain. Because like we talked about, Sauron, you're probably not interested in reading a, a Sauron story um, from his point of view or, or relating to him. But there are, there is a whole, like subgenre of like the bad guy wins type things and it's i think the most successful with the anti-villain the person that you who does the wrong thing for reasons that we like we understand why they do what they do not every bad guy not every anti-villain will this work with um there are some characters in fandom that are um in their canon circumstances at least from the point of view of the original creator, not a villain. And the most um, polarizing figure in fandom is going to be Albus Dumbledore. Um, I don't believe for a minute that J.K. Rowling meant to write him as so villainous. But she got trapped by her plot circumstances and her plot devices. Um, and probably even the formula of the YA novel. Uh, where adults well, don't seem to be trustworthy. Yeah. She had intention blinders on, I think, with 
with her characterization of Harry, which is she was so focused on moving Harry through her plot arc that she failed to consider the what the obvious implication it was for the adults around Harry. Mm -hmm. I, I just I just don't think it was a consideration until it was too late. And, and then it was too late. And but if you look at Albus Dumbledore's character and you take him apart, you can shift him and move him around so that he's not the manipulative piece of shit who drove a teenager to dumb to commit suicide. And you gotta pick and choose your moments when you can turn him, when he gets his wake-up call. When he gets hit by the clue bus. Yeah. I did it in Stand By You with um, the Chamber of Secrets. And the, and the clue bus he got hit by was Hero Ito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dumbledore's one where I don't personally think... A lot of people write him as more of a protagonist type or, you know... It doesn't work for me. I even have a hard time as writing him as an anti-villain because I just find his methods so villainous. But in theory, we should be able to relate to his motives. I just personally can't. But he is a character that you should, in theory, be able to easily um, turn into doing better. And you could call that, a, I guess that would be a redemption arc for him, where he gets, like you said, gets hit by a clue bus and he he gets turned onto a different path and he does better. He's and, honestly the only one in his canon circumstances in Harry Potter that I find redeemable in his canon circumstances. Whereas him, Yeah, go ahead. You just gotta get him before he's set Harry up to die. Right. You have to get him to realize what he's doing. But when it comes to a character like Snape or Umbridge or Voldemort or Bellatrix Lestrange, um it is you can't I, mean, I can't write it and I don't buy it um, if you take them in their canon circumstances and try to redeem them. It just, I don't buy it. If you want to change Severus Snape, you need to start the day he meets Petunia. Or you have to get him all the way through his circumstances, like in Reboot, and make him face what he's done and then go back and work for it. But even then, a part of me thinks, no, you asshole. Because his canon circumstances are so disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it all, you, you can, you can do it with almost anyone, I think. But you do have to, I do think it usually involves time travel. I think <laughs> time travel. <laughs> You probably even could write a redemption arc for, for but the, the worse somebody is, the more awful they are in canon, the more you need a complete reset. Um, the other way to write a redemption arc for somebody who's not done something atrocious, because you think if somebody's done something absolutely atrocious, it's going to be hard to get the audience to relate to them. So that's where it comes to, um, like, let's say somebody's just done something really bad here and there right and so you write they did one thing that's really obnoxious or whatever and so they go out they go somewhere else and they they live a better life and they do good things for other people and they don't inflict themselves on the person people that they've hurt you could do you could write a redemption arc that way i mean i don't know exactly what you would do with it but you could um percy percy weasley is um contemptible um is he irredeemable no He's, he's perfectly redeemable, but he's also 
pretentious, snobby, and boring, and um, disloyal. Uh, he's another one. You just got to get him before he probably before he leaves Hogwarts. Um, and then the question always becomes: you know, it's not so much a matter of could you. The question is, do you want to? Um, and honestly, and it, obviously, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But to me, honestly, it's not just awful characters who need redemption arcs. Sometimes reasonably tolerable or even semi-good characters sometimes deserve to be redeemed in some fashion. To me, to me, any adult, literally any adult in Harry Potter who starts doing the right thing, you're writing a redemption arc. Right. Because in canon, they didn't. They didn't. So Slytherin Black, even though most people don't, probably most people don't perceive Sirius as needing a redemption arc, in my opinion, um, Slytherin Black is a redemption arc. Well, you know, Sirius was was reckless, and he made a terrible decision in a really ugly moment where he decided or that his desire for vigilante revenge was more important than the safety of his godson. And he paid for that for 12 years. Yeah. Now, some would say he paid more than enough for it. But even paying for it doesn't equal redemption. It's just like saying I'm sorry is not actually an apology. Because honestly, he still, and, and that's one of the things I explore in the very first chapter of Slytherin Black, is he still, when he when he did get out of prison, he still believed, he still trusted Dumbledore, despite Dumbledore's mistakes. He still trusted Dumbledore in a way more than he trusted Harry. So, at least that's the way canon came across to me. Well, what it boils down to is that Sirius Black, coming out of Amazkaban, is, is mentally um, damaged. He's suffering from PTSD. He, um, no, Sirius was not actually an Auror um, in canon. That's that's Fanon. But even if it hadn't been, I mean, I mean, I mean even if it was actually canon that he actually worked for the Aurors, um, he uh, didn't have orders. It wasn't a case. Um, he was acting outside the, the scope of his job. It was vigilante revenge. Same. Actually, I don't think Sirius Black was old enough to be an ROR at that time. He might have been a trainee, like Tonks. Because you have to remember that he was just 21 years old. 20 or 21? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think... I, I actually don't have a ton of... Um, I don't have any antipathy towards Sirius. I think that he was reckless. His mistakes were understandable. But it doesn't change the fact that he made mistakes. And it doesn't change the fact that the person who's more innocent than Sirius is Harry. And so one of the things I dealt with in Slytherin Black is that Sirius, from the perspective of distance, you know, from the, from the, you know, he has that time to reflect on everything that's happened and get healed and get clarity and feel like he needs to do a better job. So it's not an obvious redemption art because Sirius hasn't done anything tragically wrong, but he still made mistakes. And sometimes small mistakes have big consequences. And the person who paid for every adult's mistake, really, in Harry Potter was Harry Potter. So, um, you know, adulting, it's a thing. So it, it to me, I, I, I wrote it with the intent of it being something of a, a redemption arc for Sirius in his own mind that he needed to do better, that he needed this chance to do right by Harry. 
And that is his, his primary goal. And he made it clear to everybody that his primary goal wasn't even to deal with Voldemort. His primary goal was to make sure Harry was okay. That's what he went back for. And that he couldn't prioritize anything higher than that. Now, of course, sometimes you have two very, you know, taking care of Voldemort will take care of Harry. So he has to deal, do that. But that's one of the reasons why he assembled a heavy hitter team to deal with that for him in a lot of respects so that he could focus on his godson. In Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, he reveals to basically the entire you know, magical world um, when they want him to do his oath, complete his oath for Minister um, of Magic um, or Minister for Magic in Britain that they're going to have to reword it because he made a vow on his magic when Harry was returned to him that nothing and no one would take higher precedence over his son. And that everything he did for the rest of his life would be to protect and Harry. care for his son. And that was his way of um, atoning for that very reckless moment that he had the day that Lily and James were killed. And it is just a moment. It's one moment out of minis. But you can write a quiet redemption for somebody. It doesn't have to be... Um... Like in in your face, so like this is I'm I'm you know taking this person back in time. I mean, I love a good take a character back in time and get them to fix all the shit. Um, but you don't have to go that that hard on it. Sometimes a very subtle, the the most subtle moments are the most important. Yeah, they really are. Um. So one of the questions that led to this podcast, and I think there's a lot of questions here that we can need to kind of break down, which is that um, you recently said that everything is about POV and for the Wicked Witch of the West, Dorothy was a murderer and a thief who killed her sister and stole her ruby slippers. Have you considered writing a story, turning the villain into the hero? Would you see that as redemption? Would it be a matter of humanizing the villain so that the readers could sympathize with him or her? I guess I'm wondering how one writes from that POV to make the villain into the hero of his own story. Um, honestly, for me, uh, Dorothy, the, the Wicked Witch and Dorothy is not a not the best example in order to answer the question because it's not difficult at all. You don't have to make any adjustment to write that story from the Wicked Witch's point of view. And Dorothy's an invader. Um, I mean, they cracks- did it actually really well in Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. They, 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 and you don't have to change a single detail, right? <laughs> Dorothy's an invader. She crashed the house in Munchkinland on her sister, stole her shoes. It is not difficult to just switch the POV, and it's a very different story. You don't have to change the details. But when you write, then she kills the Wicked Witch of the West in a contract killing. <laughs> right, exactly. So it is. That's a, that. That's an example of where POV is really the defining factor with the same set of events, right? Other stories, it doesn't work quite that way. You do have to change something. Um, And that's where you've got like a full-on villain, where you've got like um, Sauron. You can't, I don't think you can just tell the tale of Middle-earth from Sauron's point of view and go, oh, that poor misunderstood evil eye in the sky. (laughs) Because he wouldn't be a hero, he'd be an Um, anti-hero. Would he even be an anti-hero? I mean, he's doing absolutely nothing right. So <laughs> just just putting it in the villain's From point of view. From your point of view, maybe those nasty hobbits have it coming. <laughs> right. But, but that comes in. You do have to give them. But that, that comes to the, the example of would it be a matter of humanizing the villain. The only way to write to me, Sauron, 
as the protagonist of the story is you do have to give him some kind of motive because you have to present in order to make him a hero or the anti-hero of the story, or he is the protagonist of his own story, you have to give him a motive to me that is relatable beyond just the desire to control and be in power, because that is not something audiences are going to relate to. Now, the Wicked Witch was maybe just living her living her best life and um, protecting her kingdom, right? And And this little strumpet crashed a house into it. So hers is easy. Sauron be very difficult, and most people probably wouldn't want to. Now, Sauron could be completely different. That could be a completely different and easier both POV to deal with, but also he's probably a character that you could insert a catalyst, bring a catalyst in to affect change in his arc and write a redemption arc where he doesn't fall, where he doesn't become dark, where he doesn't go to Sauron's side, and how would that change the course for Middle-earth? Um... And I think that's much easier to do. That whole thing is much easier to do with an anti-villain, somebody where we relate to their motives, than it is to do with a pure villain. And I think it's important if you're considering will a POV shift make a difference, is what kind of, what is the antagonist? What is, is your antagonist just a misunderstood cop or a misunderstood witch or just whatever? Um, is your antagonist... Um, a lonely cannibal. I mean, it just depends. <laughs> it, it just, that does. It actually does come back to GMC goals, motivation, and motivation and conflict. Um, because the goals of your character and the motivations of your character d- determine how your reader is going to view them. If Hannibal Lecter exclusively killed women in sex crimes, he would not be somebody I would want to read. If Hannibal Lecter focused entirely on killing children, I would not be interested in reading that. But Thomas Harris actually created a character who took his tragic human circumstances, turned them around, and decided to eat the rude. He decided to be a troll. I mean... (laughs) You gotta appreciate the audacity of the man. But so, but it but it does boil down to his victimology. It's easier to relate to Hannibal because he's not killing women um, for sex crime purposes. He's he's not um, preying on small children. He's not. You don't see him killing animals, although I'm sure he probably did when he was younger. Um, what you see is is I'm, him. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Killing and start- eating people. I mean, the killing animals is is how they start, and they and then they escalate. Hannibal started with people. Yeah, pigs. Why would he? Yeah. De- why would he devolve? I mean, other than killing for food, why would like before he? But the first people he really killed were people, the Nazis who ate his sister. Yeah, yeah. So and forced him to eat his sister. So I think killing animals, unless he's you know, I think it would be devolving for him. Um, I'm not sure what Hannibal's origin story is in the TV show. I didn't watch it that far, but that is his origin story in the books and in the movies. That um that his family was um um set upon by Nazis and the Nazis um his sister was sick so they killed her and ate her. And they he hunted ev- them down later and killed them. They do eventually get to what happened. I I don't remember all exactly all the specifics because Will finds Hannibal's childhood home. Um, 
But anyway, that's They all need very... to say that they have advanced the timeline so it wouldn't be Nazis anyway. Because um, originally that was, you know, during World War II. And Hannibal right. obviously I... isn't that old. In the I want to say I want to say in the TV series it was the Russian occupation of Lithuania that this happened in, in the TV series. But I'm not absolutely sure about that because it was a while ago. Um, anyway, so but the point is, is that his choice of victims makes him easier to deal with, even with the cannibalism, because he's not killing a class of people that um, would offend most people, and that's terrible, right? It's terrible. Right. It but is terrible. <laughs> But yeah, because if because if it was if it was if it was if he was like a sexual sadist, we would perceive him as a villain, and POV doesn't make a difference, except perhaps making the story more gross. Um, because there are like Dexter who focused on killing other criminals. Right, Dexter is a classic anti-villain. So, um, who? But. He's an anti-villain, positioned as an anti-hero kind of thing. He was the protagonist, but he's definitely kind of more anti-villain because he was doing terrible things. No, I guess he was more anti-hero. He was doing terrible things. For he was definitely the hero the right in, um, in his own mind. He was a hero. He's in his own mind, but I think in terms of the in terms of the definition of doing the wrong thing for the right reason, that would be the anti-villain doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Be anti-hero. So. But I think Dexter, Dexter just wanted to kill people and he chose to deal with his pathology by killing killers. But in any case, in that case, in Dexter's, in the case of Dexter, Dexter is a case of where POV does make, make a difference because Dexter's point of view, he is the protagonist in of his storyline. But to the cop that's trying to, if you're writing a story from the cop that's you know, a good cop, a relatable cop, a ca character that people like, the FBI agent who's trying to figure out who's killing these serial killers, let's say Will Graham is trying to figure out who is killing all these serial killers, Dexter is no longer anti-hero or anti-villain. He's the antagonist. He is, And so that's the case when it comes to Dexter, when it comes to the Wicked Witch. POV makes a big difference. But not every character can you just switch the POV out and have it make that kind of a drastic difference. Um because it all depends upon their arc, what's going on with them, their motivations, how relatable it is. Um, and do you have to change events to make them more relatable? And if you have to change events to make them more relatable, you're not talking about it just being a matter of POV. It's also a matter of, of what your arc is and how you're restructuring them. What it becomes less redemption arc and more alternate universe. Potentially. The more you change. Yeah. 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 So, like, in Aliyomoto, um, Severus did all the things he did in canon. Because the last life he lived before he got thrown back in time was the canon life. The But that was one of hundreds of lives that he had lived. He died in all of them. Um, but he, the last one he did, the one he remembered, because he's allowed to keep his memories of one life when he goes back in time. And he's allowed to keep the memories of the life he's living now. So he has two, basically two sets of memories. And so the last, the, the events that he remembers is the events from Canon. So effectively I've got Canon circumstances, but what I did to throw in even the possibility of a redemption arc with exactly Canon circumstances is Severus was under the influence of potions since basically since childhood and under the effect of loyalty and um, compulsion potions. So, the villain was Dumbledore in that arc. It's very understandable. 
Right. And the thing is, for, for Severus, it, it doesn't matter to for him. The hard part is, is even though he was, he knows that his mind wasn't his own. His memories say his mind was his own. So he has this burden of guilt that he knows isn't. Dumbledore is behind all of this, but in his mind, Severus, and I think that's one of the ugly things about that kind of magic in in Harry Potter is people is under some under some curses or potions is they do things feeling like it's their own free will, and so even when the when the curse is broken and you know okay why did I do that it doesn't change the fact that when you did it or when he did it it felt like it was him, so he labors under how that felt. And the mistakes he made, which is why in the afterlife, even though Lily knows he wasn't responsible for how, you know, morally responsible for how he acted towards Harry, it doesn't change how Severus feels about it, which is why he won't see Lily, because he deal he can't deal with the guilt that he feels. So it is a redemption arc in a sense, because it's more f about redemption for himself, because he needs to set things to right and it, as much as he can. Um, which is why he's so devastated when he thinks that one of the outcomes of him traveling back in time to do all this stuff is that he might have erased Hermione from existence. That was a beautiful moment. Because I was, I was in the same boat with him when he said, oh, not her. I went, fuck you, Jilly. <laughs> <laughs> Not her. <laughs> I think that's when I realized that Hermione was my unicorn. <laughs> um, so in a fashion, it's a redemption arc in the sense that Severus feels like he needs it. It's not technically a redemption arc because Severus didn't actually do. He was, you know, Dumbledore was the puppet master. Severus was just the puppet. And I would never blame the puppet. So, um... In that sense, it's an AU because, but Severus has the memories of all of those events happening exactly the way they happened in canon. So it's not completely divorced from canon in the sense that all those events happened, but it is It is an AU in the sense that, you know, Dumbledore was behind it all. So it's convoluted. But if you read it and it reads to you like a redemption arc, well, it is in a f after a fashion. But that's why I say when it comes to writing redemption arcs or writing from the perspective of an anti-villain or a, you know, even a villain or whatever, it is, I would say there's not a cut and dried formula, right? It's like you try it on and you figure out what you're doing and you go, does this make sense? And in some cases, it is a super, super simple switch the POV and you've got the antagonist and the protagonist switch places and it's not it's not a stretch and the wizard of oz is the classic example of that sometimes switching the pov doesn't help at all because the character is just their actions are too atrocious you're going to have to put in more for that you're going to have to put in more so um and the, you know and you might be doing a canon divergent with some character right like get them before they do something that is so um, unforgivable that the audience can't look past it. Eric Killmonger would be a good example of that. Um, there are many places I think that you could do an, a canon divergent point where, and you're writing from his point of view, where he changes his path and he could be the hero of the story without actually changing 
canon events all that much. Um, could have a moment where he decides to go to his cousin instead of go to challenge him for his kingdom and wage war on the entire world. I think the person who needs the biggest redemption arc when it comes to Black Panther is T'Challa's father, T'Chaka. He, he, what he did to Eric was unforgivable. He abandoned a child with his, with his father's dead body. I agree he needs the redemption arc. It's just, is anybody actually interested in redeeming T'Chaka for that? No, no, I'm not. So, so the question is, I find Eric a much more interesting character. Um, He's a very engaging anti-villain. And there are points when I'm like, well, if it wasn't for the fact that he was wanting to, you know, torch the entire world, I wouldn't I mean, feel bad about what was going on here. There could be a fundamental shift in his character when when, when T'Chaka is killed. When he, that is made, to, I mean, it's, it, was, it, it was a very public event, so he would have seen it. Um, but maybe that would have felt like justice to him. Yeah. But you, when you think about the Black Panther, at any point before he sent those ships out to just start blowing people up, to start killing people, he hadn't actually done anything wrong. Other than the fact that he's dethroned T'Challa, what has he, he actually dethroned him in a way that was legal by their, by their laws, right? So up to the point where he took the action to send those ships out. Oh, true, true. He did kill the museum lady. But, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, was she in the way? Shit happens. See, Hannibal's ruining me. But in, yeah, but no, I mean, in terms of his actions in in Wakanda, what had he done that would make him a villain? So in the movie, he did kill that one lady in the museum, and there may have been some other people killed along the way. But then those, he killed the, the guy before the challenge, which was probably not kosher. No, he, he killed him after the challenge, right? Because he killed him down. He killed him. He killed him down when when um he got the herb. He couldn't have killed him before. No, he killed. Um, he killed the dude right there in the challenge space. But no, he wouldn't have. Um, T'Challa would never have agreed to the challenge if he just walked up to the guy and killed him. Then he kills him after T'Challa goes over the cliff. Right, 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 right. So now, he, um, okay, if so, that so, guy had actually stayed with Eric. Um, and not allowed Eric to discover how his father was killed. Um, Eric's circumstances would have been a lot different. He could have um, taken the boy, Eric. He could have uh, arranged it so that the, his father's murder didn't look like what it was. He could have... Um, I mean, at that age, it would have been pretty easy to convince Eric that um, he could have actually hidden the body. And say that his father was recalled to um, to Wakanda. Well, when you go all the way back to Eric's childhood, it's inexcusable they didn't take Eric with them. Right. They just left him there. So I don't. I would find any redemption arc from either T'Chaka or what's his face, um, the priest guy who was the spy. Any redemption arc from them would ring really flat to me that they don't take Eric away from there. He doesn't need to find his. You know, he definitely needs to find his father's body but they just shouldn't have left him there um they should have taken him back to wakanda honestly in my opinion but they could have even told him that that tushaka came for him because his father was murdered and then they didn't know who did it i mean it would have been a terrible fucked up lie to tell the kid but it would have been better than what he got 
Right. I mean, you could have, you could write a redemption arc for, and it would be kind of a redemption arc. It's canon divergent, right? Kind of where he, before he did goes into that museum and, and sets himself down the path of actually getting the vibranium to help invade, to get to claw, which was part of the whole, the whole trap to get him into Wakanda. Um, is he, he, inter, he crosses path with somebody who changes his mind about things because Eric's anger is not it's something we understand and it's something we relate to and actually Eric's backstory the reason why he's an anti-villain and not a villain in Black Panther is because we do relate to him so profoundly and we understand why he's driven to do we, we know he needs to be defeated because he's killing people indiscriminately but even T'Challa understood him understood his motivation yes he did which is why itachala was sad that eric died at the end because he didn't actually i don't think he actually wanted that i don't think that's what he wanted was for eric to die so i think what he saw in him was the potential for a brother that he wasn't allowed to have because of his father's mistakes but you could have somebody encounter eric earlier in his life even after he was already in the cia um so there are ways to put Eric on a different path. Um, could you just change the point of view and just have Eric taking over? You still have to do something. Even if you have Eric, because he's an anti-villain, I think you can make him relatable enough to write a story from his point of view. Point of view. It's a little bit bloody and there's a lot of death, but you do have to divert at some point, I think, because once he goes out and starts trying to take out, you know, destroy the world, it's a little bit starts edging towards your headed somewhere dystopian so and some people like that and actually if you're a dystopian writer and that's the kind of thing you like writing things from the you know the conquering villains point of view might be your jam i don't actually have a lot of advice for that because i like being able to relate to and appreciate and feel good about the end of the story and that's why i don't read dystopian stuff yeah and i don't feel good about that's it. why i try to avoid and zombie then, stuff as well because it always it's like really <laughs> I mean, if there's not some time travel taking us back in time so that, you know. Claire ruined me. Yeah. But she took us back in time and fixed all the shit. She did. It was great. All in. Little time travel. Little time travel does a lot when it comes to redemption arts. But that brings us to another canon character that I find actually pretty much irredeemable unless he doesn't get bit by Peter. And that's Scott. Scott McCall is a fucking asshole. And the only way he's actually tolerable is if he's not a werewolf. And I only watched 30 minutes of the first episode. And I already have that really vehement opinion about him. <laughs> and most of the most of the arcs that have Scott being tolerable have where he's a werewolf is he seeks the bite. It's like in a werewolves are known AU mm -hmm. where to cure his asthma, he, he asks for the bite and he, he's part of a pack from, you know, it's Scott's insistence, his daddy issues rearing up and his insistence on being a little lone wolf was just, it just made him atrocious. He, he didn't have anybody putting any controls on him. And I actually haven't read Scott as a born wolf, um, but probably because I don't seek out anything that's Scott centric. So, but yeah, anyway. I wouldn't um, read that either. But and when you look at characters that are difficult to do redemption arcs with, Teen Wolf is rife with them. Um, 
I do think Chris Argent, you can do, basically, let's be real, the show did a redemption art for Chris Argent. So it's not really hard to imagine um, what that looks like there, is he just one day started doing better, you know? Um, he was never obviously the worst, so because it was easiest to put him on. Um, and Chris, Chris of all the characters fits the least well into into that you know hero antihero villain antivillain model because he was doing really awful things for really awful reasons, but he believed in what he was doing. So I was like, where does that? I, it's really hard to figure out where that fits, but. He also turned a blind eye to the code breaking of his family. I mean, he believed in the code and he followed the code, but he also, he knew his father and his sister weren't and his wife. And he just chose to live in willful denial, which makes him a problematic it, character. It makes him weak. Yeah. And weakness is, is, is hard to, um, that that kind of care moral weakness is is hard to justify it's hard to redeem it's hard to sympathize with um because you can say a lot of things about a character like Hannibal but what you cannot say about Hannibal Lecter is that he's weak um so when you put characterization where they are too weak to follow their own moral compass it's difficult to find them palatable in any way. Yeah. Now, one day he he had that moment at the end of season two where he just realized his family was just fucked, and he decided he was going to do better. And they they switched him more into, you know, depending upon the storyline, he was more on the protagonist side of the fence, more a little bit more antihero than anything else. But that was a character shift for him. Um, and he's he's the least problematic of the problematic characters, in my well, opinion. Well, the problem with that show is, is, they, is that they cast somebody really attractive. Um, I think that's probably their problem from the get-go, actually, is they cast really attractive people and they made them do things the audience want, wish they hadn't. So then they had to retcon them and make them more palatable. But then they had a problem because their their main character was the least attractive of all the cast. Um, both in personality and probably even in looks. And so, you know, their audience did not, a lot of their audience did not latch on to Scott the way they wanted them to because they put all these other attractive, interesting characters in the way. And then they turned Scott into a um, a giant hypocrite. Yeah. Is that a good term? Hypocrite's a good term. So I don't find it like, POV doesn't help Gerard Argent. Um, honestly, I to me, I wouldn't even want to time travel with him. I find him so detestable. I mean, the last like, thing he needs is more information. <laughs> right. It's like it, to me, it'd be like time traveling with a Nazi. I, I, no, I just there's just some people that have just like they've gone you've gone too far. It's like I, I'm not, I wouldn't be I I wouldn't even have advice for how to write a redemption art for Gerard Argent because I think he's gross. Kate, Ar Kate Argent basically the same. It's just partially because to me. Um, I, I don't find writing rape, you know, uh, redemption arcs for rapists to be something that I would want to sort that sort out. Although I have seen people write like an AU version where like they have like somebody time travel and like raise Kate and Chris, you know, I think there's maybe one that like styles raises Kate and Chris or something. He travels back in time. I, I can't quite put my finger on what that was about, or even if I read the whole thing, but um, 
but I do remember, or maybe I just read a summary. I don't know. Like, Margaret says there's two of those where Styles raise, raises the Argents. But that I wouldn't call a redemption arc because you're completely overriding a character. When, when you completely takes you into an alternate universe setting. Well, I mean, for Styles, it could be a canon divergence. But if you're looking at it from a Kate Argent perspective, it's an AU Kate Argent, yeah. yeah. But it all, but that, that, that's where POV comes in, because if it's all being told from Styles' point of view, it's not an AU. He traveled back in time, and he went raise the Argent so they'd be decent human beings. So it could be, you could, he could be canon divergent, you know. It just, it all, it's all in the details, right? The details matter. Um, but outside of completely reimagining the character, like you re overwrite them, I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't touch a redemption arc for Gerard Argent or Kate Argent with a 10 foot pole. Chris, yes. I you could know, do it's, Chris. it's really difficult to look at Kate Argent and see anything but um, a rapist. Because you know that after she left Derek, she went on to the next town to another 15 or 14 year old boy. The older That's she got, she's kept on doing it. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. So it some characters I'm not interested in trying to reimagine into how to make them into better people. Cause I don't think you can make them into better people without completely going back in time and, and ha raising them differently, which is why Severus Snape is raising Voldemort in a Leomoto because you just, some people you just cannot fix. Um, I think it also, um, could be interesting to send a character back in time to take people out of the equation that influenced Tom Riddle inappropriately. Um, like Dumbledore? So, no. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, he was the first one on my list. Um, to have somebody else besides Dumbledore go to the to go to the um, orphanage uh, and see what Tom Riddle's circumstances are. Um, to take out Slughorn before he ever has an opportunity to teach Tom Riddle what a Horcrux is. I read one, a story, where the reason, um, I don't know how it happened, but Riddle had found a book in the library that had Horcruxes in it, and Myrtle accidentally destroyed it. She was practicing something, or was it the Pence? It was a girl. It was, it was Madame Pence. It was the librarian. She, um, she destroyed the, uh, the book by accident. And Tom eventually cursed her. She was like the brightest witch of her age. Cursed her, and she barely passed her owls and newts, and or or just her owls. And she wasn't going to be invited to to come um to come back for sixth year because of the curse that Tom had put on her. And the headmaster at the time offered her the job of librarian. And she took it. And so she stayed in Hogwarts um, as a librarian. First as the assistant and then as the librarian. But it was a ripple. Because she destroyed the book that he needed to research Horcruxes. So Tom Riddle never got Horcruxes. And he was eventually... Um, she, she, she changed the course of the world by accident. I think he also killed Myrtle in Revenge. But it didn't do him any good because he couldn't make Horcruxes because he never read the book that brought them up. So he never asked Slughorn about them and he never became Voldemort. All because Madame Pence lost control of a charm she was practicing when she was in her fourth or fifth year. He never even saw the word Horcrux. 
Because she destroyed the book. It's what I, I mean, I, it's been a long time since I read it. But it was a very interesting study on ripples. Ripples are everything. Um, somebody asked in the ask a question. Um, is Jareth from Labyrinth someone to redeem or just Sarah's POV makes him a bad guy? Well, from his point of view, didn't he just do what his job? He does. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's two aspects. Um, in terms of from the baby and having Sarah run the labyrinth and, and that, um, he was just doing his job. So that is just a function of POV. Some of the creepy connotations between Jareth and Sarah, that's not solved by a POV change. Um, I've never actually watched the labyrinth. Um, when it first came out, my mother found it, um, uh, she didn't like the themes of the labyrinth, so she refused to let me watch it. And then when I got older, I was like, <laughs> so I've never actually watched the labyrinth. I've seen synopsis of it though. Um, yeah, I think that it there's there's in terms of him being the Goblin King, and when somebody calls and he goes and gets the baby, and if the person doesn't um, doesn't get through the labyrinth in time, um, the baby becomes one of his what is it whatever goblins the goblins he becomes one of the goblins or whatever that whole that whole arc right that is a function i do think that is a function of pov that's like the wicked witch kind of thing versus dorothy um where you change the pov it's very different the way jareth's kind of fixation on sarah and some of the creepy vibe between them um that is not going to be solved by a change in pov because he'd still be you know he then he'd be a really ancient dude actually it would be worse with the pov change right because he you then you'd be in the creepy old dude's head thinking really unfortunate thoughts about this somebody, somebody somebody very underage so um so uh, that, that I'm going I'm to call that one a toss-up because his function, right? He his he's positioned as the antagonist because of his function, vis-a-vis um, -vis the baby and the kidnapping and her running the labyrinth. But that's not why he's problematic. So that that is solved by a POV change. His creepy ass interactions with her that is worse with a POV change. So you know, take that for what it's worth. It's. Mm. Yeah. Um, if anybody has a specific question about a particular character and how you'd go about redeeming them, drop it in the ask a question for the podcast because otherwise we would just be going round and round in circles. Yeah, I think we've exhausted the actual topic. So if you have um, questions about individual characters, that would be great. But if not, then we might end the podcast and go read some it, more yeah. Hannibal porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it is, when it, it's one of those things when it comes to the anti-villain or the villain, um, or even the tr just a traditional antagonist, right? Um, it's not it's not clear cut how to write a redemption arc or will a POV change change the tone of it because it, it really depends upon what their character arc is and what they've done, like literally what they've done. Um, are they relatable? You know, is it, can you get the audience behind them? How much do you have to change? Is it, you know, if you have to do, because a follow-up question somebody asked was, it how back, far back do you have to go to redeem a villain? Do you have to do a complete 180 on their characterization? And they, again, it comes down to an all depend. it all depends. Um, I perceive Dumbledore more often than not as a villain, but I don't think you have to go all that far back to 
to, to switch things up for him. And then that would be a redemption arc because you could have a, a hero Edo moment with him, but other characters you do, it's not a matter of redemption. You do have to go back and you do have to completely turn them around because you know, they're, they're just Snape. Let's look at Sever Snape. Sever Snape. If you, if you want to do a complete AU with his character, you go back to practically his birth, right? Um, if you want to do a redemption arc for Severus Snape, you start October 31st, 1981. Or maybe even before that. Just before that. Because if it's about redemption, it's about him making up for what he's already done, right? Um, how does he do that? He prevents the Potters from being attacked by Voldemort. There are a couple ways that can, that can happen. He can murder Pettigrew before he gives the Dark Lord the secret. He can follow them to Godric's Hollow or volunteer to go with him to Godric's Hollow. Um, follow probably best because he's already asked the Dark Lord to spare Lily Potter. So it's unlikely that Voldemort would actually take him. Um, but if he overheard the secret, he can follow them, right? And he curses Voldemort in the back. We know in canon that James Potter never had an opportunity to fight back. He didn't even have his wand when Voldemort came through the door. But what if when he came through the door, Severus Snape was right behind him and, and put a piercing charm through his chest? Yeah. Because I don't think you have to go all the way back. and It all depends upon how you perceive Death Eater. Um, some people I've seen people write really atrocious initiation rights for Death Eaters. Yeah, you don't, I have you don't, myself. You, you, yeah, you don't have to do that. You know, you, even if that's your head cannon, you don't have to do it if you're trying to do a redemption arc. If you do put in a really atrocious redemption, a, a really atrocious, you could shoot yourself in the foot. Okay, if you want to redeem Severus and you don't want to go all the way back to childhood, and you put in like honestly like a rape or something into their initiation right you've just you've made it impossible in my opinion and what you can do is if you want to leave that in there you can say that snape was exempt from it because voldemort didn't want to taint his magic um for potions and right. there are certain potions he wouldn't be able to do if he'd practiced any kind of dark magic right so there are things you, you just gotta be you just gotta imagine like what now i have another harry potter story actually i think it's the only harry potter story on my site that's of any length is the first one I wrote was called Restoration. And I don't, I don't even know how I really characterize that on terms of the re redemption arc stuff. It's not really a redemption arc at all. It isn't because they really lean into the whole Death Eater thing, right? Uh, Snape and Lucius, neither one of them are apologetic about the Death Eater thing. But of course, in, in that story, there's no atrocious acts to become a Death Eater. Had Lucius killed people? Sure. Um, but them, there's no, that's not even the point. They're not trying to be who they are. They're not trying to be somebody else. And, and in that story, like I said, they kind of lean into the whole, you know, you know, they're, they're the, this is from their, their point of view and this is their family. And, you know, this is Lucius's side of the, the wizarding world. And it's, you know, whatever it's, it is what it is. It, it's kind of a, I, I leaned into it and just made them unapologetically Death Eaters, whatever. Um, but which is a choice. It is a choice. It is a choice. But Lucius was, um, in order to protect his family. However, his Lucius' family was the most important thing to him. 
And so he was willing to, you know, potentially fuck up his own mind to, to, to be able to stay with them. And, you know, once the whole, he would have, he would have not supported the dark Lord in the future, not because he doesn't believe in sort of the it's behind the scenes and he's not because he's, doesn't believe in the whole pure blood ideals and all that kind of garbage, but because it's really bad for his family. So it's very self It's very self-involved. There's a lot of self-interest. Um, it, there's no, for the good of the world, there's no real, there's no real character redemption there in that story. Um, because honestly, I was trying to get it done. And what was our word count on that one? 15,000 or something? Yeah. It, it wasn't very big. And I would, I actually, it may have even been 10. I think it was 10 and I went, I think it was 25. So I was, you know, I just didn't have the room. To, I was like, I'm trying to keep this as contained as I can and still tell the whole story. So I didn't have the room to really try to actually make them out to be light wizards. So it was just easier to lean into them just being dark wizards. You know, dark wizards can love their kids too. So that was a case in that particular story within a very isolated set of events. That was a case of where they were um, point of view did matter because the Weasley, if that story had been told from the Weasley's point of view, Lucius and Severus would have been terrible people. Dumbledore was still the villain though. Um, so somebody asked to save Derek, from all the angst and guilt, do you change him or Peter or Talia? Uh, so he says to save, and then somebody countered and said to save Derek, you have to go back to Paige. I don't think you have to go back all the way to Paige. I mean, yes, it's a traumatic, it, um, it's a very traumatic experience, but if in that moment, when, when that happened, his mother had focused entirely on Derek, um, in his circumstances and getting him through that and really pay attention to him and not giving him the distance that she gave him in canon, then Kate Argent would have never gotten near him. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a little, it might be a little bit black and white about, about good guy versus bad guy. And part of the things with, with not you care, but in general, right. people in general, um, good guys, bad guys, it's very nuanced, right? Um, Peter had responsibility for what happened to Paige, but he wasn't actually at fault for it. Ennis was. Because I don't for a second believe that Peter set those events into motion with the belief that Derek was going to have to kill his girlfriend. So changing Peter isn't the solution, right? Um, well, that would imply that Peter would have the ability to know who could be bitten and, and who couldn't. Which, which is contrary to canon, right? They didn't know who was um, um, who would survive the bite and who wouldn't. Right. But it, there were several things. But like I said, the person who bit Paige against her will was still Ennis. It wasn't Peter. Um, I think that's a Fanon thing. Um, I think the left-hand thing is, is Fanon. But... Um, What's the left hand? Um, well, in Fanon, the typically the right hand is like the person who is like the the left hand is the enforcer. The right hand is the second in command. And the left hand is the third in command, and the enforcer is is okay. the. But in any case, um, I don't think it's so black and white that to say to save Paige, you have to change Peter. That 
it's to me, I would find that to be a, um, I don't know. It, it, I find it, it, it it's to, to save Derek heartache and pain and also saving Derek heartache and pain and saving Derek angst isn't a redemption arc. So giving Peter a redemption arc to save Derek a little bit. I mean, you could, you could fo fo focus a redemption arc for Peter. That's about, you know, Derek, none of that stuff having happened. Um, Derek survives. Yeah, Derek. Derek doesn't die there. So Derek survives. Survives all that. So it's not about saving Derek. It's about changing Derek's future circumstances. I think Derek's future circumstances are more about Kate and losing his family than not than than about Paige's death. I mean, Paige's death obviously deeply affected Derek, and it made him susceptible to what happened with with Kate. But Kate. If but there's every reason to believe that Kate would have still done what she did, even with Paige there, or Kate would have killed Paige to get her out of the way. Because it, it, there's there's an assumption that that's being made that if Paige survived, she wasn't bitten at all. If if Derek if Derek had never had that conversation with Peter, or Peter had never made that remark to to Ennis, and Ennis hadn't bitten Paige, Paige could have still broken up with Derek. Derek still could have fallen, been susceptible to advances from an older woman. So saying that Paige lives solves Derek's problem isn't necessarily true. It's, it's actually a, it, really simplistic, and it could, and in certain circumstances, Paige could actually be a harbinger. Because what if Ennis attacked her but didn't, but wasn't able to bite her, and his behavior brought down on Beacon Hills a fresh hell. Of hunters, because if I remember correctly, part of Peter's advice was just that Derek tell her, right? What and if what if that she did tell her, and she lost what her if shit, it, and she couldn't deal with it? So, assuming that all would have been roses because Paige survived, but let's say that it, it all was. Let's say Paige did survive. Kate Argent still comes to town. She still plans to seduce a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, ever how old he was at the time. Um, and I, I know they changed it repeatedly in canon, but if he was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, he was not much more than 16. I, th I think Derek, if, let's say Kate, but the thing is, I think it's a false, I think it's a, it's a false conclusion, or at least there's a false equivalency being drawn, that if Paige survives, if she wasn't bitten, that none of the stuff with... Derek and Kate and and the fire happens and I don't think I mean you could work it that way but I don't think that's it's necessarily written in stud it actually isn't even likely to me that that would be the case because because maybe I, maybe he tells her and she's like horrified and she rejects him and he withdraws from his family but now they don't know why that they, they think he's going through a stage here's um here's Kate offering him acceptance and sex and what fifteen year old boy turns down acceptance of sex, uh, acceptance and sex from a really good-looking woman. Zero. Well, what if she isn't even horrified? What if she just breaks up with him? So the only way that the scenario plays is if Kate finds out, completely accepts Derek, they stay together, but she doesn't ever want to be bitten, and has never been. Because, you got to remember, if Paige and Derek stay together and she ever asks for the bite, she's going to die. That's canon. So it doesn't matter when that bite occurs, she's going to die. So... Maybe she asked for the bite when she graduates, when she's 18, because she and Derek stay together. 
you know, long, young lover. She decides she wants to be a werewolf, be with her little werewolf man. Take Taya blame gives, her. She still does. Taya, Taya gives Paige the bite. Paige dies. So Paige and Derek, best case scenario for them is that they stay together and she always, always is human. That she never asks for the bite. That's their best case scenario. More likely she breaks up with him. Okay. He's still vulnerable to Kate. Still vulnerable to Kate. And then what? I mean, because the if I was her, happens. I mean, even if he showed me evidence that he was a werewolf, I would be, I would be freaked the fuck out. Well, first I would think he was crazy. And then I'll be like, so you're, my mom isn't going to let me date a werewolf. <laughs> I thought Gerard did take the wolf's bane ahead of time to help guarantee that he wouldn't. Except Scott tainted it. Now, they're estimating saying that yellow wolf's bane in canon cures rejection. So why wasn't that used for Paige? And I thought it had to be taken in advance before you were bitten. But the reason why Scott, I mean, the reason why Gerard rejected the bite is because he was riddled with mountain ash. Which so Scott the gave him. The implication is, is that they replaced the yellow wolf bane with mountain, um, with mountain ash, and he didn't know the difference. No, they were, no, not the wolf's bane. He replaced his cancer meds with mountain ash. Ah, see, I never watched a stupid show, so, so he stupidly assumed that he would just survive the bite, but also that stuff is really hard to get a hold of. You know, it's a teenage romance. In reality, it's unlikely to last regardless. I think that if Derek had not been the target um, for Kate, uh, somebody else in the family would have been. Um, It could have easily been Laura, uh, who is um, impulsive. um, At least what we see from her from canon. Um, Probably would be uh, flattered to make an older female friend, even if it wasn't sexual. She'd have found a way in. So the, really the root of of solving Derek's angst isn't Paige, it's Kate. Kate is the single biggest wild card in that time period that they have to deal with. She's the problem. Because she's a child rapist and a murderer. I mean... I mean, if you prevent Kate and you prevent the family from dying, Derek's... Kate Page's death is still tragic and he still has to live with it, but it isn't what I think he'd get over it. So if you want Derek to be Derek to be angst free, then you send Peter, who is aware of the future, back in time and you prevent all of it. Yes, that is a way to do it. But he still wouldn't be angst free because he'd be a 15-year-old boy. Right. True. And 15-year-olds angst over everything. I mean, if it's not that, it would be some girl on Twitter who who won't give him the time of day. I mean, you know. I'm not even sure Twitter existed then. You, but, you, but, you, but you see the point, right? Um, there is no such thing as angst-free. If he's not angsting about Paige or lusting after the substitute teacher, then he's pissed off because he can't run in the preserve at night because his, his mom thinks it's dangerous. <laughs> he's 15. <laughs> According to the wiki about the yellow wolf Spain is... Um... It doesn't say anything about bite rejection. It says yellow wolfsbane was introduced in season four and is described as a very rare and very expensive. It was first seen in IED being reduced to a liquid form and applied to a blade as a means of paralyzing a victim. Um, and then so it talks about... Fanon, the, the, the other thing could be Fanon. 
Well, there, I think there was a discussion in canon. Um, there was a discussion about uh, some some version of Wolf's Bane that could be taken. But in any case, it says um, Chris Argent used Yellow's Wolf's Bane as a tranquilizer for both Kate and Peter. The orphans used Yellow Wolf's Bane to poison Brett and IED. Deaton in the episode Orphan cured him by cutting deep into his chest. None of this sounds like it has anything to do with preventing bite rejection. Um, Chris gives it to Gerard. You know, honestly, I think that's the last thing that Gerard would need. <laughs> or like, like he... You need to rephrase that. <laughs> because... Sure, are you even looking what you're saying? <laughs> Chris Argent, get, give it to Gerard when they do the beast. <laughs> yes, you are. You are definitely typing too fast. I'm like, what beast? The beast with two backs. Okay, so it's a, yeah, I found this reference to the yellow wolf's bane. It says that he ingested the yellow wolf's bane to stop the flow of whatever. It doesn't even say stop the flow. It's to stop the flow of what? I don't know. And return to normal. But that implies that they cured him of the bite, which I would call this a canon contradiction. Especially since it's used as a poison. In the same strain of Wolfsbane is used both as a curative and a poison and a paralytic all in the show. That's just shitty writing. That's honestly just shitty writing. Is it a poison to humans and yeah. or, or is it a poison to werewolves and a paralytic to humans? It's really not clear. Well, it says that it was used as a paralytic on, on Peter Hale and on Kate, so... Okay, so... But in any case, I can't, we can't sort out Team Wolf's crazy. Can't, I mean, um, eventually we're going to have to have a podcast on how a series Bible works and why you should have one. <laughs> and how if you're ever involved in a group writing project, how it's very important that you respect the series Bible. Um, well, one of the things that Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf puts out the idea of the multiple varieties of Wolfsbane and the the... The, the range at which the, some of them are poisonous is different and depending upon there are definitely some shows that some um, some some fic that deal with the idea that wolfsbane is very poisonous to humans too um in any case um it's one of the things that and one of, to, to the point that was raised about why didn't they use this yellow wolfsbane on um page which is why i went down this little research check is it it is rare and very hard to get so it would make sense that with that you know no, nobody has it but also gerard was ill for a long time before they gave him that kate i mean not kate page was ill for a very short period of time so it actually i find to be an incredible canon contradiction that gerard argent survived the bite rejection because it's implied it's implied and flat out said in canon that the bite rejection kills you pretty quickly, like within a matter of hours. I mean, Paige begged Derek to kill her. So it's assuming, I mean, if I would imagine that if, if it really did cure bite rejection, this is an if, 
because it's not really clear what was going on with Gerard, right? It's not clear at all what was going on with him because he survived for a long time leaking black goo. Gross. But, right? But if if you're writing a responsible um, werewolf family, like in Talia Hale, and she's going to be biting somebody on purpose, and she wants to minimize the risk of bite rejection, and you're writing it, you, not the show, because the show is inconsistent, and you're writing it that this wolf's bane will reverse the flow of this bite rejection and return them to being human, which is kind of completely contradictory to everything in canon other than that one incident with Gerard Argent. If you're going to write that, then Talia would, of course, put the expense out there to keep this stuff on hand. It wouldn't have solved the problem with Paige dying in the woods. No. But if it took her hours to die, and he and if, if he found her sooner and picked her up and took her home, somebody else could have done the, the mercy thing, part. Yeah, assuming you, yeah, he didn't have to kill her out there in the woods. Um, the fact that he did it that way, that he handled it that way, that he found her out in the woods dying from bite rejection, and he didn't take her home is crazy. So you've got a you've got a bazillion things that add up to that don't make sense. A bunch of actions that don't make sense. You've got the contradiction of how did Gerard Argent survive the bite rejection for so long before his son cured him with something that isn't a curative in the rest Especially of the show. Especially since he had a whole bunch of wolfsbane in his body too. Not wolfsbane, um, mountain ash. Mountain ash, but I mean how? I mean, he, he's suffering from terminal cancer. He's been denied his cancer medication and given given mountain ash instead. He gets bitten. He's got bite rejection. How the fuck? <laughs> and yet he just leaks in this old folks' home for, you know, this... this, this How? You know. <sighs> right, how? And then Chris comes in waving about. It doesn't make any sense. And so you've got Gerard Arden is an anomaly compared to the rest of canon, so... I tend to, you know, err on the side of bite rejection kills quickly. Yellow wolf's bane does not cure bite rejection. Well, it's because they needed they needed a villain periodically, and you know, he was convenient. When did the page art come up? When did that happen in in, in, in Teen Wolf? I want to say we find out about it in three A. I think. So like, three seasons in, they try to vilify Derek. With a mercy killing. Okay. Well, at that point, the character was really, really popular, right? Yeah. Yeah, Derek was popular, and I don't think they ever intended that. So they had a way, they were trying to think of a way to bring him in, to rein in his popularity, to stop taking so much focus off the character of Scott in the in with fans, so they cooked up this mercy killing. Right. Except it implies that he didn't trust his alpha. Um, that he didn't have any kind of bond with his mother um, as she was the Alpha. So she didn't feel that coming off him. She didn't feel his distress. I guess. I mean, the implications of everything surrounding Derek are either ugly or don't make sense. So, man, dude needs to get over that really terrible relationship he had with Derek and move on with his life. Really, right? Because we're all tired of getting attached to the Derek's that he beats up. Um, 
get laid, move on like the rest of us. Eat a pint of ice cream, drink a bottle of wine, drunk call him a few times, and move on. Yeah, law of nature. <laughs> Green Amber says, the law of nature, the bigger an asshole you are, the longer you can live fighting disease. Apparently so. Because I, they want to make you to believe in Keen Wolf Cannon that Gerard Argent survived on pure evilness. Because it, but there's so many things that happened that should have killed him and didn't. I mean, I have an aunt who is quite old, and she's evil. So, I mean, and I feel like she'll outlive me. And she's already 100. So, you know, I can see how, you know, evil will make you live longer. I guess. Anyway, when it comes to Teen, when it comes to teen Wolf, um, there are some characters I wouldn't be remotely interested in turning. I wouldn't even have advice for how you would turn them other than to, like in the case of Kate, have somebody else raise them. But then she's a completely different person and it's not a redemption arc. Because to some degree for redemption arc, the character, you they have to be aware of the problem, at least to some degree, the problem. You it's have like to... the parts of an apology, which I don't know off the top of my hand what they are. But earlier in the podcast, I said that saying I'm sorry is not an apology because it's not. An apology um, has a whole bunch of parts. I'm pretty sure that Julie is looking up at this moment. Um, and one of them is acknowledging what you did and the consequences of your actions, promising to do better, doing better. You know, it's it's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not saying, I'm sorry if you feel that way. Or, I'm sorry if you were hurt. Or, that's not an apology. But the anatomy of apology is actually is actually quite complicated. If you mean it. Did you find it yet? Yeah. Um, six elements. Expression of regret. Explanation of what went wrong. Acknowledgement of responsibility. Declaration of repentance. Offer of repair. Request for forgiveness. And also accepting that even though you've made your apology and you've repented and you've accepted the consequences of your actions that and you've offered um, and you've asked for forgiveness, that forgiveness is not a guarantee. Right. And that even if you're forgiven, it doesn't mean you're allowed back. That you have to divest yourself from the idea of being forgiven. You can't count on it. Um, and honestly, most apologies these days go along the lines of non the non-apology, which is, I'm sorry what I said upset you. Not I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry what I said upset you. So I'm sorry for your emotional reaction, which is not an apology. And yet that's the way most apologies these days go. I'm sorry you were hurt. I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry I was an asshole. I'm sorry you were hurt. Um, okay, so there was one other one other example. Obadiah Stane, how far do you have to go back to change him? It, it's certainly before the kidnapping. Yeah, it. Uh, you have to figure out... I mean, you're going to have to construct a, a progression of events. When did he go bad? I mean, what, there's some some lines you cross that you have to decide, okay, is it is it okay that he did, you know, that he sold Stark weapons on the black market? Um, if it's not okay, um, you need to go back further. If it's not okay, but he's gonna make a, but he's gonna atone for it, okay, that's part of his redemption arc. Um But if you Oh, you'd think so, wouldn't you, Hearse? Um But not quite. Um it, but once to get to the point where he's arranged for Tony Stark to be murdered, 
you're past the point of redemption for um, for, um, for Obadiah Stane, in my mind. That's just my personal opinion about him. There's no indication that Obadiah Stane was um, a member of Hydra. And Hydra killed um, Howard Stark because they wanted the super soldier serum. Or they wanted a better version of it. And he was researching it. I think in terms of MCU canon, we don't know exactly when Obadiah went the dark side. We don't actually know. We can make some inferences. And honestly, you could have it be any time from the time Howard was alive to literally right before the kidnapping. And it probably would fit. So, but I agree with Kira, you have to do it before he had Tony kidnapped by the Ten Rings. That, that would be a really interesting arc for Obadiah, it, to do a little bit of time travel, um, is that uh, he dies, and he's given um, a lesson in what happens to the world if Tony Stark isn't there because of his actions. And then he's shown a world where if he was supportive of Tony, what could be? Um, and then he has an opportunity to go back and make better choices, to be a better man. And the better man arc in time travel is is iconic. I mean, in, in a way, I did it in Unleash Your Demons for both Tony and Loki. Tony was never a bad man, but he sometimes made decisions that were selfish and destructive. Um, whereas Loki was just, you know, <laughs> Loki. <laughs> Loki was just Loki. <laughs> well, when it comes to how relatable a character is, it, it you take a character like Obadiah Stane, even, you could write that arc where he time travels. But it, the audience I mean, is I never going to be focused. I wouldn't either. But the audience is never going to be focused on Obadiah. Because it, it's still in the audience's mind, he's still the guy who... Tried to murder Tony. Tried to murder Tony Stark. And yes, he's making up for his bad acts, but it it doesn't make him actually all that. Still fundamentally going to be a story about Tony Stark, just from Obadiah's point of view. Because it's really hard to write a redemption arc for a character who's done something unforgivable. I mean, what you could do. But see, the thing is, is you have to look at the events of Iron Man and what makes Tony Iron Man. Um, if you if Tony isn't the time traveling character, do you allow events to unfold where he's still kidnapped? Where he still meets um his name just fell out of my brain. In the cave. Jensen, thank oh, you. Jensen. First. Um he still develops the first Iron Man suit. He still gets out on his own. Because if Obadiah interferes with that, then it changes the entire um, arc for Iron Man. Right. And it didn't unleash your demons because Tony was the time traveling character. He was already Iron Man. Right. Because honestly, I think it changes the trajectory of the whole world if Tony Stark doesn't go into that cave and develop that arc reactor. Because I don't think Tony had any interest in the arc reactor technology. No, he was letting it go. Until until he needed it to survive. So what happens? There are still infinity stones on Earth. It, Shield is Thanos still, still going to come, him. but when he comes, he won't have um, Tony Stark won't be there to throw that nuclear weapon into, um, back into that hole. 
So it becomes a little problematic to write a redemption arc for Obatiah Stain, um, where he's a time traveler, but I mean, you could write him where he has a change of heart after Tony comes back from um, Afghanistan, and he's so changed, and he's so damaged, and he's so hurt and injured, um, and Obadiah realizes what he has done to his friend's son. I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. <laughs> no, me neither. I don't, I don't um, because he's a fuck. He's a I, fuck. I honestly, I In the original know. draft of Unleash Your Demons, Nebula killed Ob um, um, Obadiah Stane. Because before it was revealed that she was um, who she was, you know, for what her cover identity was, um, Obadiah Stane tried to recruit her to kill Tony. He thought she was just um, somebody he could manipulate and control. So he invites her over to his house and Nebula goes and um, he offers her money to spy on and eventually kill Tony Stark. And she kills him on the spot right there. Um, and it was, I took it out um, and changed that arc when I was writing because I felt like it didn't fit her evolution. Um, and her killing of Ross is a very visceral moment because in her mind, Ross became Thanos. But Obadiah Stane doesn't have that same characterization. And so it felt like a backward step for Nebula. So I took it out. But eventually, um, yeah, yeah, originally she was going to kill him and unleash her demons. And she will certainly probably kill him in the second part. <laughs> but it will be an act of self-defense. Or in the defense of someone she loves. Not just a temper tantrum. Not just because. Um, because she can. But also because she can. <laughs> <laughs> because she yeah she can um there are definitely some characters that i have absolutely no idea no, no, no idea no desire to i mean if somebody were doing a like a, asking me to do like a bunny bounce with them or whatever to work out i could i could help them work out a redemption arc for probably anybody even Sauron, but or or writing them as the, as the protagonist, how to write them as a, how to reimagine them to write them as a protagonist it, in a practical application. I could probably do it for almost anyone. Um, but just in theory, it's really hard for me to go there. Like just theoretically, how would you do this? Because there's, it's just, I'm like, why would you? So it's like if somebody came to me practically and said, I really, really, really want to write or reimagine Sauron where he's like a benevolent ruler of middle earth. I'd be like, well, all right, let's sit down and do this. It's crazy, but whatever. This I is, have an idea. It's your so, oh my god! When when Frodo destroys the ring, Eru, he's been watching this um, all this shit go down, right? And he's looking at Sauron. He's finally got Sauron back. He's like, dude, that you know, that's not why I sent you there. You know, look what you made me do. I even had to send Gandalf down there, and you know he hates it. He didn't want to go. I had to make him. Look what you did. Look at the mess you made. Look at all the orcs. What the actual fuck? So I only so, have I've, I only have like one option left for you. I mean, so I really hope that your um that your minions didn't make too much of a mess of the Shire for your own benefit. And he gets reincarnated as um a hobbit with no power. <laughs> 
Is that a redemption arc or is that? No, it's a punishment arc. He gets, he gets, he gets re- uh, reincarnated as a poor hobbit who has to rent. <sighs> <laughs> so he, he, he lives through his whole life. And he gets back up there. And he's like, was that enough? Have I, have I been punished enough? And he's going to be like, no, not nah, dude. You're not, you haven't been punished enough. I, I mean... I just want you to know that you literally brought this on yourself. And so the next time he wakes up, he's actually, um, Thanderil is looking over him and he's kind of like pissed. And Sauron realizes he's been reincarnated as Legolas and Gimli's um, grandson. <laughs> Come on! It's crack. It's crack, okay? Um, she's she's writing a fart. So basically what's going to happen is in his punishment is he's going to have to be reincarnated as every race that he oppressed in Middle Earth. Yes. Exactly. I, I see where you're going. I see the farce. I I just go to the corner. <laughs> I didn't say it would be good. I said it would be funny. So he's all put upon. He has to live his whole life and be a good person. Even though he doesn't want to. He doesn't have a choice. And he finally gets back up there. I think because he's like, you know, he's like a quarter elf. He doesn't live a full life. Like, he doesn't live an immortal life. He, you know, he dies. Um, maybe he lives a couple hundred extra years longer than a dwarf would. Anyway, he gets back up there. He goes, so now am I done? And he goes, nah, dude. Nah. And then he, next time he wakes up, he's a human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think eventually he had to be an orc and a goblin as well. Oh no, I'd be like, you're going to be a a great eagle. Uh, (laughs) I see a ski with a skin changer. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of there's lots of so by the end of it, Iru, you know, he's he's done all the different races, and he gets back up there, and Iru says, "Well, what's next for you?" And he goes, "Can I be a hobbit again?" He goes, they had the best life. All I had to do was farm and eat. <laughs> no, and then and then Iru says, the next life he goes, he goes, here's so here I'm gonna test you. I'm gonna test you. We're gonna send you to another earth. You're not gonna have any memories, and you're going to live, see what you do with it. And he's born as Tom Riddle and he does it again. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. And then Tom Riddle dies and Eru meets him and he goes, you just had to do with the soul splitting thing again. What is with you? What is with you? I cannot trust you to keep your soul in one piece. How is that a good idea? And not just once. You did it repeatedly. It's like you only did it one time in And that didn't work out. out. And we and then I put you in a new world and you do it seven times. You thought you thought like that was going to help more. Buckle up, buddy. Your reincarnation is going to suck. <laughs> I'm sending you to America as a house elf. A flock of Cornish pixies. You're supposed to be in bed, young lady. I'm I can't saying. even with you. 
the point the point of that crazy was is that if somebody comes to me with an idea and says i want to write a reincarnation arc where you know it's not redemption it's a punishment arc it's a farcical punishment arc for sauron i'd be like okay let, let's sit down and plot this out but just in in going okay like pick a pick a villain off the shelf there are some i want to leave on the shelf you know, well, some um, are you know utterly like Thanos. It would be difficult to redeem Thanos because he murdered trillions of people. Uh, yeah, but he's but he is. However, they did honestly. They wrote him as kind of the protagonist of Infinity Wars. We've talked yeah. about that in another podcast. He was kind mm -hmm. of the protagonist of Infinity Wars. They tried to make us understand what Thanos was doing and why. So, in his reasons for being unhappy with the world, relatable. What he chose to do, oh my god, what the fuck? Batshit insane and not even rely. So, not even, I mean, he would have basically, I mean, re realistically speaking, if he had done what the Russo's brothers said he did, which was remove half of life from the universe, he would have disabled, he would have destroyed everything, disabled um, every single every single ecosystem and they did say he did that they said he destroyed half of everything so so which, if you destroy half of everything you destroy half the resources then what the fuck was the point right which means that they actually don't know anything about science is the way i'm interpreting that but anyway uh, he actually becomes a prime character for a time travel redemption arc because we get it titan sucked have him fix the universe with his massive powers and giant head and big hands rather than destroy it. So I wouldn't want to write it, but he is actually an easier character to write a redemption arc with through time travel than say somebody like Sauron or. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, but I wouldn't want to, I, would I wouldn't definitely either on the shelf. I would have actually preferred to have seen his canon, his comic book arc be his motivation. I mean, it's rude because she had a lot of work anyway, and why make more? But it would make sense if he had an obsessional love for death and was giving her presents. Yeah, I agree. The comic book arc was because, because we see we see people do stupid shit for love all the time. Because his reasoning and what he did actually would have eventually destroyed the universe. Mm -hmm. He didn't actually do anything that he intended to do. Yeah, no, he didn't. And it actually didn't make any sense. I, I I have to think the Russos are just fucking idiots because. Well, look at their time travel theory. Apparently, what he thought, yeah, well, that too. Apparently, what they thought was that Thanos was going to solve the problems of the universe. They made Thanos's logic. I'm going to solve the problems of the universe through empty real estate, <laughs> which is just fucking dumb. Anyway, yeah, um, Death does prefer pet Deadpool in the comics, but um, th that that arc would have actually made more sense to me than him saying he was destroying half of life to save the universe because that's not what he did. Um, it didn't make any sense; it was irrational. And they, but they tried to present him as this really rational person who was doing this this thing for the good of us all, for the greater good. But well, it wasn't. In Infinity War, we all kind of were still going, I wonder where this is going to go. We were all kind of like suspending our disbelief, right? And then they started bringing in all the theories and they explained. And then the Russo started talking. They should have just been quiet. Um, right. 
but at the end of Infinity War, we were kind of all hanging there going, wow, okay, this is not, it's not good. But he was being presented as the protagonist of that story. Then Endgame comes around, the, inter- the Russos clarify a few points for us in the worst possible way. And we all go, that's fucking dumb. So they kind of ruined Infinity War by just not keeping their mouth shut. Um, in any case, but I agree. Generally, Thanos is one. He's he's a villain I'd prefer to leave on the shelf and not reimagine or redeem. Just leave him alone. Or give him, you know, or keep him as a villain, but give him better motivations, like the whole death thing. It's still not reimagining him. It's still not redeeming him. And it's not it's not making him, it's not doing a POV fix, but it just makes him more interesting. Dumbledore, I personally prefer to leave on the shelf, but he is one that I could easily plot with somebody taking him off the shelf. And Kira has taken him off the shelf. She's put him in a nice outfit. You know, she's played dress up dolls with him and given him a nice oh, yeah. arc. And well, that's the that you know, really honestly, it's so easy to make him the bad guy that it's like it's less of a challenge. Oh hush. It's true, though. I mean, because he's so fucked up. He's so fucked up in canon that Dumbledore is... You don't even have to twist his actions to make him look like a complete and utter asshole because of what he does to Harry Potter. But to take those those things apart and to find parts that you can twist and turn and make him a more reasonable character is actually quite difficult, at least for me, because I have zero respect for him because he fucking led a teenager to suicide. So it's it's actually really difficult to write him and just to be this misguided um, man with good intentions. That's actually really difficult for me because I don't buy it. <laughs> I think he's a manipulative bastard who, who, who let a child be abused and then set him up to be murdered. So there's um, sometimes so there's a couple comments in the chat room about sometimes the irrational don't know they're irrational. I think this is in regard to Thanos, and then a response was that there's he's he's the only remaining member of his race. I don't see anyone being rational after that. Um, I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, mm. yes, I yes, I think what happened on Titan obviously greatly affected him, but I certainly I don't think of it as much of a reason for the. It's a reason, but it's not much of an excuse for the way he is, because based on that that logic. Rocket should be what? What do you? How do you explain Rocket? Rocket is one of a kind, and he was created through medical experimentation, so he should be completely irrational. And he's a little unhinged, but he's Riddick is very rational. Yeah, Riddick is the last of his people. He's a killer, but he's not trying I'm to not destroy the whole he's universe. Necessarily a good guy, but he's he's rational and hot. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> who who's the real evil and didn't who kill them all? We got, oh, some, we, got we got we got some unclear antecedents. Me. We got some unclear antecedents. I think that she was asking if Thanos killed all the Titans, and Kaya was saying that Dumbledore is the real evil in her bunnies. Well, I have Dumbledore on a spectrum from writing him as being. Um, just manipulative, just canon. The way I see him in canon, that so canon, which is still bad guy, still villainous in my manipulative, opinion. careless. Yeah, to full on the way he was and darkly loyal, right? Like it's Slytherin Black. He was. I can't malevolent. even tell you how much I enjoyed writing him like that and darkly loyal. It was so fun. 
my hit list was the best part of that whole story. <laughs> yeah, the, the hit list was great. But in Slytherin Black, he's full on malevolent, right? He Now he's deluded. He thinks that he is doing the right thing for magic in his mind by preventing dark magic from by reducing the power of people whose affinity leans towards dark magic. But he's doing it. He's using just full-on evil mastermind methods to, to, to accomplish that. He destroyed soulmate magic. So I write him as a villain in that story. So he, I have him on a spectrum from just kind of like the benign, negligent, manipulative asshole to the full-on, you know, evil asshole. Um, I think that actually my darkest portrayal of Dumbledore isn't even in Darkly Loyal, it's in Duality. When he actively suppressed Sentinels and Guides for her, um, yeah. the entire time he was at Hogwarts. Yeah. To the point where there were practically none in Britain. And he did it in such, such a subversive way that no one even knew about it until he was long dead. Okay, so we his, got one, you know, compatriots. We got one more question about character, and I think this will be the last one we take yeah. about character. Howard Stark redemption. Could he set things in motion to protect Tony? I actually think Howard Stark is a pretty he's he's a character I find to be pretty easy to work on a redemption arc for because um his bad acts kind of rise to the level of bad parenting or n neglectful parenting. Um as opposed to some of the other things we've talked about. So it, it's, yeah, pretty mean, yeah. it's pretty I mean, easy. It's pretty easy to just. You could have Peggy Carter. Heads kick, up. Yeah, you could have Peggy Carter kick him in the ass at the right time, and you know, and and that could just put him on a different path, and that really could change things very dramatically for Tony. Um, I don't think he's a character that you're going to feel just changing point of view into his point of view is going to make things any better because you're still going to see him as a neglectful parent, regardless of why he's doing it. Even if he's trying to protect the world, he's still not there for his son. He's still kind of a judgmental dick. So I don't think that kind of is going to solve the POV switch isn't really going to solve things for him, but you, he needs an interrupt. He needs a catalyst to kind of come into, you know, into his path and say, what are you doing, Howard? What are you doing? And get him or he you know maybe he needs a shake up you know maybe something happens to tony and it, it it it's like a smack in the face and he realizes that he has to do a better job that he that tony is the thing that's the most important to him so he's well, you can have an attempted kidnapping yeah when tony is small I mean, I've read stories, and I've seen this in more than one, where, like, Tony's re kidnapped repeatedly as a child. Repeatedly. That Howard would be so lax with Tony's security actually moves him to a level beyond neglectful parent. Right. If Tony, if Tony is such a target, and Howard is that careless with him, that Tony is kidnapped all the time, and it's just old hat for him to be kidnapped, then Howard, you, that person has, I don't think, the, sometimes I wonder if the authors are aware that they've made Howard like almost evil with that. His, his neglect is, has transcended bad parenting. It's full on abuse. It's, it's disgusting. Um, I've even seen it to where Howard was disgusted with Tony getting kidnapped all the time and stopped paying the ransom. And if Tony couldn't figure out how to get himself out of it, he didn't deserve to come home. That's terrible. So... And yet, and yet, then they'll turn around and say, "Yeah, it, it, you're right. It, 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 
it happens a lot in the MCU. People write it that way. So that is people taking Howard. And yet the funny thing is they don't extrapolate it to be how evil that makes Howard. It's just like, oh, he was, they'll actually tag it like just Howard's A-plus parenting. No, that's just not neglectful parenting. That is, that's gross. So, which is fine. If they want to write Howard that way, I have no issue with somebody's character choices in that regard. But you kind of, I don't think Tony turns out the same way when you make him, when you change, make Howard that abusive. Um, I haven't seen that, Kaya. I'm glad I haven't seen that. I'm not going to repeat that, though, because that's, I find that horrible, horrifying. So, but Canon, Canon Howard, as we, what, from what we see of him in Canon, it is pretty easy to put an interrupt, a catalyst into his path to get him on, on a different path and get him treating his son better, get him treating his wife better. He's an easy character to write in a redemption art for in that in that vein. But it, I mean, I would assume that'd be like a prologue kind of thing where you would write a prologue from Howard's point of view and show him doing something better for his son and then you skip forward however many years and show the ripples of that because I don't know it, it it's an it's an odd space to to just write like a story that takes place you could actually 60s, do in the late 60s and early 70s and that's it you could actually do a an in-game can divergence where when Tony actually has his conversation with his dad um they're, they're talking about fatherhood and the handshake goes down. What if Tony said something different to him? Something that made Howard think, and then and, and then his son is born, and he's holding his son, and those words come back to him, and the entire MCU unravels. That's your prologue. Chapter one. You have a youngish Tony Stark. Um, Every you know, ever how you wanted to do it, maybe Howard and Tony are unveiling um, some kind of robot that, that that they've made together, and you wreck and you realize that Howard changed everything for his son, and he stopped building weapons long before Tony could even talk, and he has this um, he's all in on flying cars and and green technology and um, making the world a better place for his son because. A version of his son traveled from the future and told him something really profound. Yeah. I don't remember the scene, what what they said to each other. But if I was going to write it, it would be like um, that every day I, I live my life as a man who wants to make the world better for my children. Or my daughter. Or my child. Because Tony only has one child. Um. And maybe those words come back to Howard when, when he's holding his son for the first time. And it changes the trajectory of his life and Stark Industries and Tony's. But that would be a world that might not have Iron Man in it. Very likely wouldn't. That that would be that very likely ripple. <sighs> or it, that is the, you know, Iron Man comes sooner because Ob um, Obadiah Stane is trying to um, figure out a way to control Howard or Tony, um, and he gets Tony kidnapped um, to try to manipulate Howard um, 
or to take Tony out of the picture so he can better control Howard because Tony is not as controllable or or easy to manipulate. Iron Man still happens, um, and Howard Stark beats the shit out of Obadiah Stane before he kills him. <laughs> but you do have pretty big ripples with yeah. changing things for Howard, and so that's something to consider. And if you're writing a... Um, it's just it's a challenge i would say it's a challenge to figure out exactly how you're going to frame it because typically when somebody's writing an mcu story you want it set sometime in the mcu like on-screen timeline which would be you know the it slightly either slightly before the events of iron man through endgame where we are right now that's typically where you would want to so stories that are set way outside that timeline other than perhaps some captain america stuff um you might, I mean, and there, you as a, if you're as a writer interested in writing it, go for it. But a big, the bigger, the more time skip you do, because if you're changing events back in 1969, 1970-ish time frame, so you're changing events there, and then you do a big time skip to like 2010 or 2009. The longer your time skip from the where you change things, the harder it is to track your ripples. It is, it, it, it's. Which is one of the reasons why I chose the time period that I chose for Unleash Your Demons. Because I was tempted to take him all the way back to the point where he could prevent his parents from dying. But it was just too big. It was too much. The tracking of that, your ripple could become a tsunami. And it's a question of like, well, then what? And in that case, you're kind of reimagining every event in the MCU. And there's a lot of moving parts to track, which is totally fine. Unless you're just writing an isolated story that takes place back then and you aren't following through on those ripples, which is cool, too. You could write a late 60s, early 70s story um, and not and just let the reader try to figure out what changes. You could write an AU where Steve Rogers, old Steve, prevents Bucky from murdering Howard and Maria Stark. Howard, having come close to death, um, seeing an older version of Captain America, he goes back to his son and strives to be a better man for Tony. A better father. You could write a redemption arc for there, Howard. There is a young Iron Man series, but I'm not sure how Tony becomes Iron Man in that series in the comic books. You could write a redemption arc for Tony, not Tony, for Howard and Steve, where Steve doesn't go into the ice. And um, Steve is around to be friends with Howard. And I, conceivably would be Tony's godfather. For you, Steve, Tony Shippers, this is probably would not be a good idea. But <laughs> Steve, Steve is around to be Tony's godfather. And when he starts seeing Howard kind of slipping into obsession and not being, Steve could be a catalyst for Howard being a better father. Like kicking his ass, like, why aren't you home with your son? Conceivably, Steve and Peggy would be married, you know. I mean, and, and that would be more more of a set in the past kind of thing, because that would be, to me, that would probably be more focused on Steve. But you could focus it equally on Steve and Howard and the impacts they have on each other's lives. Um Howard kind of shaves off some of Steve's naivete and and gets him you know, 
not quite so single-minded about things or thinking he's always right or gets rid of some of his stubbornness that Howard's a good influence that, you know, where Howard's strong is where Steve is weak. And you could see, you could kind of do a whole, they shore up each other's bad points kind of thing and make both of them better men. It'd be redemption arc times two. And all you'd need for that one is that Steve decides to jump out of the fucking plane rather than crash into the ice. Or, you know, just break out of it after it was in the water because he's fucking a super Captain soldier America. and swum to the fucking surface. Instead of laying down, putting his shield on his chest and going to sleep. That's, that's what he did. I know they wanted us to have that image, right? When they found him. But, but the implications are appalling. Yeah. He just laid down and died. Bucky should chew him out. But, you know, all you have to do is have him go, okay, I'm gonna, here I'm about to crash. I'm going to jump out of the plane now. They'll find me eventually. I am red and blue out here on the snow. They're going to see me. So, and I've got this handy little shield here I can use to reflect the sun and signal people. So you could do that. You could write redemption arc for both of them where they... You know, and that would mostly be set in the past. But again, if you ever do go to the future, your ripples are huge. Yeah, because it's possible you could have it be that Steve prevents Steve Steve being around and being Captain America all those years. They could send Bucky after Steve, thinking you know the Bucky's going to kill Steve. They don't succeed. Steve gets Bucky back. You know, I mean, a lot could change. It could change how um, Hydra infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. when when they infiltrated, or how, or if they ever get it all. Because um, it wouldn't just be Howard and um, Peggy anymore. It would be Howard, Peggy, and Steve. They wouldn't be spread so thin. And there's other part, the other part of it is, is that Steve does have very vehement opinions about um, Nazis and the Hydra. So he would not have been so keen to recruit former Nazi assets to S.H.I.E.L.D. the way Peggy and Howard did. He wouldn't have been on board with it. Which could have kept S.H.I.E.L.D. which could have kept S.H.I.E.L.D. Hydra free. Because mm -hmm. they would have wanted to stay off Captain America's radar. Because he's a wild card and he can't be trusted to follow instructions. I don't think that um, I don't think that Howard would have hero worshipped Steve if Steve Rogers hadn't died. He, I think Steve Rogers was larger in light, um, larger in death than he was in life for Howard. Um, and if he had been in his everyday life, um, Steve Rogers would not have been this Captain America legend. He'd have been the asshole who can't follow instructions in the field. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Peggy, do something about your husband. <laughs> I don't care if he can punch through a wall. He shouldn't have punched through the wall. Now everybody knows. So if anybody ever wants to write a redemption arc for somebody who's a villain or an anti-villain or maybe even an anti-hero, because sometimes anti-heroes need redemption arcs too. Um, and you've got something very specific you want to plot uh you could we could do a um an idea bounce thing or you know if it's not conversation for the podcast if you wanted yeah if it's not super specific we could do um 
maybe do a plot drift about it, but it would have, like I said, sometimes some of the suggestions we get for plot drifts are too specific. It's like a single story and as opposed to being like a, a theme or a trope or something. But anyway, um, we could suggest something we could do, but I don't think, I think it's a kind of on a case by case basis, how you approach these people and how you turn them and what works best in that fandom and what works best for that character how far how much you have to change to get them to a good place if at all uh so i ellie nothing will save eli and gibbs not even true love (laughs) okay i will say if we're to do this i'd want it to be something that's like when it comes to like trying to come up with a reasonable redemption arc for a, a, a villain or an anti-villain or something like that, I would want to do it if somebody really serious about it, as opposed to... Yeah, I'm not interested in the crack thing. Um, you know, but, it's funny, no, but, I, but it's not... No, as opposed to people throwing out like the most improbable suggestion possible because of like some sort of voyeuristic curiosity. Cause, and I'm not saying specifically about this idea, but we have had like, um, like plot drifts ideas at times that just were kind of... Uh, like it completely improbable and it was more of a like well could you well we could but would we why would we so the character of Kavanaugh in Stargate is only offensive because he's offensive to Rodney and later he becomes an asshole to Elizabeth and um they terrorize the shit out of him with Ronan, which was really inappropriate, by the way. Um, but Kavanaugh is just an asshole. He's not a villain. You can write him as a villain, but really, because he's not a POV character and he's not a regular character, you hate him. But if if Rodney had said the same things that Kavanaugh said, you would have thought it was funny. That's all about POV and um, who you empathize with. Kavanaugh was set up as a um, foil for, for McKay, and it worked really well. Um, probably too well, based on how you know fandom treats him. And I can't stand Kavanaugh, so I'm not even one to judge on this. But I would not say that he's a villain. I don't think he's a villain. I mean, he's kind of portrayed as a weasel. Uh, yeah. He kind of didn't, it didn't in some of the reports, like he tried to rat them out and stuff. So he's kind of portrayed as kind of weaselly, but He's not villain or anti-villain or hero or anti-hero. He doesn't fit. He's just... Some people are just assholes. And uh, to me, the characters are the most like interesting to get in and try to redeem or to write a redemption arc or to just write it from their point of view are the ones that are like people are rooting for them even though they're the bad guy. I can't remember. There's some movie where I'm always rooting for the bad guy. Like, literally, like, I want the bad guy to win. I'm always disappointed when he doesn't. I'm blanking on which movie it is, though. But when it co- when it goes that way, when you really want the bad guy to win, it's like, that's the kind of character you can get in and, and do, like, just a POV shift. It's like, okay, we'll just do a POV shift on those and then let the bad guy win. Um, if it's a character you relate to, but you kind of know they kind of got to do, they kind of got to go down. That's just the way it is. That's somebody you could do a redemption arc with. Or, you know, so kind of your emotional reaction to the character speaks, it should inform you as to what you can do with them. If your reaction to them is just 
meh. Why would you want to do anything with that character? I mean, I would never write a redemption arc for Umbridge. Some people, you know, we've talked about some people have done different things with her and reimagined. That's not a redemption arc, though. I've everything I've heard about with Umbridge has never been a redemption arc. I've heard reimaginings of her, right? But I've never heard of any. I've never heard a redemption arc for Umbridge. So it's hard to um, redeem somebody who murdered people for having magic, right? She's disgusting. So honestly, I find we have all we've talked before. We find Voldemort less less appalling. So how you emotionally react to the character and what they've done. If you find them detestable, I don't know why you would want to write a redemption arc or try to reimagine that character. You could, but you might just be beating your head against the wall. So really think about what you're trying to get out of it, out of the exercise. If, if you kind of relate to them on some level or you find them empathetic on some level or you're not really rooting for them, but you understand why they did what they did, that, that could be a character that's a really good one to play a redemption arc with because there's something there emotionally that speaks to you. I mean, there's a reason why Wicked was such a very um, popular um, show on Broadway. Um, and it's not just that it was beautifully um, crafted and put together and uh, it always has a really talented cast. It's not just that. It's the character of the Wicked Witch. And um, the we wanted to know her story. And Maleficent is actually a really good example of that too, where we wanted to know her story. And then even though she cursed a baby, we were still, we were still like, well, it's okay. <laughs> she got better. She is a little beast. <laughs> yeah. Because after what he did to her, it was hard for me to, to get mad at her for anything she did. Yeah, I agree. But in the cartoon, in the, in the animated feature for Beauty and the Beast, her Maleficent's motivations were really poorly explained. So you don't relate to her in the, in the animated. But when you give her some motivation, all of a sudden it's a completely different. So also that's another thing is when, when a character that is a villain or, or just an antagonist or whatever, when their motivations are poorly explained and you're curious that is also where you've got potential. But when somebody's like an open book, like Umbridge, and they're just fucking evil, like I wouldn't want to touch that. Um, so you just have to kind of be, you know, as opposed to it just being a thought exercise, what could I do with this character? Or which characters are blank slates? I, I would always be drawn towards characters I'm emotionally reacting to. Um, or characters that I see potential in, or there's got to be some kind of draw, right? And I have no draw to Kavanaugh, none. You could make him less of an obnoxious force, but I would never center a story on him, right? And sometimes the character you're drawn to is just as played by a really hot actor, and he's got some really nice eyeliner, you know. <laughs> the eyeliner is everything. Yeah, some, some actors just really need some eyeliner. Um, I think one of the reasons why the, like, the Teen Wolf fandom in terms of the characterizations are so all over the place is because the writers were really, but the writers were all over the place. And they made their antagonists and their villains overly sympathetic. So that's what happens when you make a villain a true anti-villain, right? They made Peter Hale in the first season an anti-villain. 
you related to what he was doing, right? You wanted him to succeed in killing all the Argents, quite frankly. Um, you wanted him to succeed in getting revenge because he deserved it. Honestly, the and, worst thing he did in season one was bite Scott. Yeah. And Scott's supposed to be the hero, and he's just an annoying little shit. So it's not surprising that Peter's much more that Peter's more popular in fandom than Scott is. Is anybody surprised by that? No. Nope. Now it may be Except distressing. Maybe distressing. To, yeah, maybe distressing to the to the creators of Teen Wolf, but they should have done a better job with the writing if they didn't want people to interpret it that way. But that's exactly what I mean about Peter spoke to people emotionally. So people latched onto Peter to write redemption arcs for him or to reimagine his character or give him canon divergence points before he did something unforgivable or whatever. Um, GMC. Right. Because he is a character and his motivations spoke to people. Whereas Kate Argent, her motivations don't speak to anybody. She's awful. Which is why I don't see Redemption Arcs for Kate. What I see are complete AUs where she was either never a hunter or where her past is just erased because she's raised by somebody else. And those are not Redemption Arcs. And that would be completely reimagining the character. So, Whereas Peter, you do get the Redemption Arc. You do get him trying to be a good alpha. You do see those storylines. Well, Killing his niece isn't unredeemable because she abandoned him and let him suffer for years. Um, She was his alpha and she abandoned him. And in my mind, the way I imagined werewolf culture, that the bond of alpha is more important than the bond of family. It has to be because pack is so important to werewolves, right? And she failed. She failed. She failed Peter. She failed Cora. She failed Derek. Um, So she was a shitty alpha. She got um, she got what she got what she got coming. She had coming. That's what I'm saying. Um, So it's easy to say that she just wasn't that she abandoned him and left him as so much bait for Argent's in that hospital under his own name. So, I mean, I've read stories that run the, we, I've read, we've all read them, the, the stories that run the spectrum um, of, but I actually tend to write it that, you know, Derek misses his sister, but that he fundamentally understands why Peter killed her. He gets it because Derek grew up in a werewolf pack. Now, Scott wouldn't get it. Maybe Styles would need it explained to him, but Derek would get why Peter would kill her, even if he misses his sister and mourns her, which puts him in kind of the space of like cognitive dissonance. But he, I don't think he would hate Peter for killing Laura. That's my headcanon because I find Laura's actions to be extremely problematic as as they relate to Peter, because Peter wasn't responsible for the fire in any way, shape or form. And yet he was the person who was hung out to dry to suffer for it. Anyway, so, but that's a problem of, that's a, that's a, to me, the way that went down. And obviously the creators didn't like the characters that fans kept latching onto because they kept trying to, you know, show us our, you know. The error of our ways, yeah, which exactly. only made them dig in worse. Right. We're going to show you that you're wrong for relating to Peter. We're going to show you that you're wrong for relating to Derek. Um, and then they're shouting back, stop abusing our unicorn. Right. <laughs> so it, it it just it just kept backfiring so that's just a failure of the writing on the show 
that people are latching onto and focusing on the characters that aren't even the hero of the show. You mean well? This, they're saying, like, well, no, how come nobody's interested in our protagonist? Well, we're just have to make he's a we're dick. Have, we're just have to make Peter more evil. We're gonna make him conspire with the person he tried to kill in season one for murdering his family. Oh yeah, that makes sense. They'll dislike him now. No, they're gonna stop watching your show. <laughs> That's what's gonna happen, and you're gonna get your ass canceled. So, which I don't think was strictly about the whole Peter thing, but I do think between you know sending. Tyler Hecklin leaving and then turning Peter into a true villain. Um, I do think it tanked the show. So, and the queer baiting. Yeah, that, but that was what the queer, but them stopping the queer baiting was part of the reason why. You know, they stopped having Derek and Styles on screen together, and and then Tyler Hecklin left probably because he wasn't getting any screen time. Not to mention the fact that they just kept finding new ways to torture Derek. I mean, it was like, could we not? But anyway, look, just let just let Styles grow up and they can get together and go off to college. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> but when, with, with what with what I saw of the first couple seasons, the characters that the audience latched onto, not not a surprise at all because your emotional react reaction to them really informs who people were going to to latch onto. Um, and you could, you could see the same thing in almost any show. I was like, okay, well, this person is supposed to be a bad guy, but now well, I can see how audiences are not going to be kind of all in on that person actually being a bad guy. But people that are full on actually evil, where they actually is really effectively written that way, like Dolores Umbridge, you don't see audiences latching onto them for redemption arc or for reimagining for the most part because they're just, we're happy to leave them in villain land and there they stay. It's you know the the problem with Umbridge is that her her pathology has no root. So she grew up poor with her father working as a janitor in the ministry. Okay, okay, okay. But the thing is, and one of the reasons why we believe it is because we've all known people who have no root for their hatred, but they're just awful. They're just awful, and, they and she was just she was literally the worst. She was, just, she was just hateful. And we see that in real life. We see people who are just hateful for no damn reason. Who just hate and that they would kill people who have done nothing for no reason other than the fact that they're hateful. So her motivations were, were never clear. And her beliefs were irrational. And her actions were um, irredeemable. Which put her on par honestly with like nazis white supremacists yeah it did and that's why we cannot stand her which is why if somebody asked me to plot a, a redemption arc for umbridge i would just be like <laughs> no can we take could we give me an easy one and we can plot a redemption arc for tom riddle because that would be great And on that note, I believe we shall end this podcast right here. Um, I hope that it was very informative and you guys got a lot out of it. And maybe it won't be like almost four hours when I edit it. And so it'll only be one part. And um, we, we shall catch you guys later. Say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone.